VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, April the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's go. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. Well, I haven't had a trip down south in years, but I tell you what, this last stretch of weather is making it look pretty enticing. So between that and if you've been involved with some of the snags at St. John's International Airport because of the weather, we look forward to speak with you today. All right, so check in on the Canadian teams at the uh, NHL playoffs. Oilers take a 3-2 lead in the series, beating the Kings last night 6-3. Pretty dominant performance. So was it Edmonton or Toronto that poses the best opportunity for a Canadian team to win the Stanley Cup for the first time since 1993? Your thoughts. This is interesting. Hockey made its debut, the ice hockey made its debut at the Olympics in 1920 during this actual week. So... Curiously, it made its debut at the Antwerp Games in the Summer Olympics. After the 1920 Games, into 1924, of course, part of the, uh, the Winter Olympics thereafter, but appeared for the first time as a world championship and an Olympic competition in the Summer Games. So this is interesting. So they didn't pick a nationwide team, picked the best of the best across the country to represent Canada. They selected the Winnipeg Falcons. Falcons. They were the winners of the 1920 Allen Cup to go to the Olympic Games. And the rules were really quite strange. So all the matches took place in the one rink, the Ice Palace of Antwerp. The rink was actually smaller than North American standards. They actually played with seven players per side, and there was a rover being used. For the duration of the matches, no substitutes were permitted. If a player left because of injury, then the other team had to take out a player as well. So seven aside, no subs. The periods, two 20-minute periods. If it was tied after the two 20s, they went two additional periods of five minutes each, no sudden death. So Summer Olympics, ice hockey, how about that? And in the gold medal match, we beat Sweden 12-1. to 1. Uh, A fellow named Frank Fredrickson scored seven goals. Canada takes the first goal. All right, so it's National Tourism Week. Now, we always want the tourists to visit. Of course, maybe in the last stretch of week or 10 days or so, maybe not the best time to visit this part of the province, given how gloomy the weather has been. So the theme across the country is Canada, powered by tourism. In this province, we know... We look at things that we call growth industries, and the opportunities to grow the tourism business are absolutely right there for the taking. You know, there's some jurisdictions that have really done a bang-up job. People make references when we talk oil to Norway, tourism to Iceland. But I know some tourism operators that have recently visited Iceland, and they say we can learn a lot of lessons from them, and fair ball. Okay. Here's some job numbers for context. Over 20,000 jobs in the tourism sector. Of course, some of them would indeed be seasonal. That's about 9.4%. That, hospitality and they'll bring in the season numbers. They say that's as much as aquaculture, the fishery, forestry, and agriculture combined. Really? Whoa. Anyway, tourism season, here we go. And this is another conversation that gets a debate every now and then. And it's about how government chooses to support one industry or another. And in this case, the TV and film business. So the tax credits have been in place for a long time. This is not a new feature. In the most recent budget, the provincial government did indeed increase the tax credit to 40% and established a $10 million film and television equity investment program. You know, the debate is whether or not industry should be able to stand on its own two feet. In this case, it seems like it's worked. 
I mean, the industry for TV and film has grown leaps and bounds over the last number of years. And as a result, what we have here is a fully trained professional crew that can be utilized by whoever, the Disneys of the world or anybody else. So the debate has now been renewed because of the premiere of Peter Pan and Wendy and references to Disney with their deep pockets, yet able to utilize tax credits. But if you want to bring it forward and whether or not you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, I mean, ultimately... The question has to be whether or not it's worked, and it seems to have. You know, we have a fully trained professional crew, and they contribute to the economy beyond simply coming here and setting up shop in one location or another. Anyway, that debate apparently is raging. Now, in the Green Report, which we haven't talked about in months, the Green Report say there might be diminishing returns because of this approach that government takes to trying to lure TV and film companies and productions to this province. And inside the Green Report, you know, it would be nice to have a status update, just like in everything else, where we have a commissioned report from consultants or the body worked on by the Green crew, Moya Green and her Premier's economic recovery team, and or get a sneak peek under the covers of the Rothschild report. But where are we? Has anything been attended to? Because we were told at the time that this would be the guiding principle, the guiding uh, report about how the province would approach economic opportunities, economic growth. But the Green Report, there's a lot in that if you want to take it on. Okay, let's move to what people hate to talk about here, Quebec. Just to show how important the Upper Churchill is in Hydro-Quebec's portfolio, there was an interruption at the Upper Churchill because of some maintenance concern that resulted in a loss of production. It meant 500,000 customers were without power in Quebec yesterday. Now, it's not that long ago they had a night storm that impacted service to over a million people or a million customers in the province of Quebec. So it's now been dealt with and all the units are back online. But, you know, when we look at who holds the cards, where the leverage is in discussions surrounding our partnership or relationship with the province of Quebec, the issues and the implications of 2041, this paints a pretty clear picture. They really do need that asset inside their generation capacity to satisfy their customers domestically and south of the border. So that's an interesting one. You know, and when we say 2041... Most people, their minds go immediately to conversations between Premier Legault, Premier Fury, the establishment of teams representing both sides, to look at the next 18 years and what 2041 might mean. That's one set of conversations or discussions or negotiations, whatever they are. But there was also a committee struck here provincially to look at the implications of 2041. It'd be nice to hear from that group as to what they found out, what they think the general public should know, or we should know everything. But I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what 2041 might mean. For some people, it's the golden egg. You know, all our troubles are solved. All our worries go by the wayside because we take back the power. But of course, Hydro-Quebec would remain with an ownership stake. So what does 2041 mean? Has that committee completed its work? You know, and then furthering conversations about whatever this unicorn of the Atlantic Loop might mean and what have you. But Hydro-Quebec, they need that upper church. And so that certainly does point to some controls that we have and some levers that we can pull. And again, every now and then, the same emailer peppers me with a, a note saying, why don't you talk about the fixed link? Hey, let's talk about the fixed link. I'm into it. Okay, so in the House of Assembly yesterday, you know, standard wranglings, opposition doing what we need the opposition to do is ask questions of the government and hold them to account and feet to the fire, you know the rest. But there's a couple I'm not 100% sure what people are getting at. Snow crab. Look, everybody knows the importance of the fishery, especially shellfish, and most certainly with snow crab. But when the opposition asks for the government to do something, and I'm not sure what they are asking the government to do, but if we stand back, what 
is the government's role in this particular standoff? And again, this is a massive one, this go-around. It seems to be pretty much an annual sideshow, but this one seems to be worse than some other issues in the past, whether it be price per pound, IQs, or a total level catch. But what are people suggesting the government do on this front? Because I don't know the answer, but I'm curious to hear whether it be from a harvester, the union, or members of the opposition about exactly what are they looking for. Anyway, I'll throw that out there. And, of course, they were talking daycare and all the issues. If you want to talk about it, let's go. All right, interesting development in the community of Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. You all know, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the province necessarily on a day-to-day basis about the behaviors of the motoring public, but I can tell you in no uncertain terms, around this neck of the woods, it's absolute sheer madness on the roads. It just is. So Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, they've now established municipal uh, control over enforcing the Highway Traffic Act. Issues regarding speeding, distracted driving, passing of school buses, which happens far too often, certainly in this neck of the woods or this part of the province. So they've got their municipal group out there doing that work. They've already started writing tickets for these illegal activities. It's going to cost the community about $140,000 a year. Of course, there will be some return based on the volume of tickets that have been written. I don't know how much of that would ever make its way back to the hands of the uh, leadership and municipal council in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. But I like the idea. Now, it comes with some built-in risks. If you hear from law enforcement, uh, pulling people over does present the possibility for a dangerous situation. So I don't know what kind of additional training has been afforded to these municipal bylaw officers. I do like the concept itself and add to it, and for some reason I'm in the minority on this one, is I really like the idea. Uh, and now, they had to get provincial authority to do this, but I like the idea of the province moving forward to amend legislation so we can put up some red light cameras and speed cameras. I'm not really convinced with the pushback, whether it be about privacy or we need front license plates or how about if it's not me driving the car, those types of things. But anything we could do to slow people down and have them looking actually through the windshield as opposed to their phone, those types of matters, I think the cove is on the right track on that front. What do you think? All right. So everybody knows that there's a real snag in the Terranova FPSO resuming production. Whether it be the seven months of the FPSO is supposed to be in Spain, it dragged down for 13 months. It came back, required a load more work. It's now in bull arm. But reading between the lines, of course, Suncor is the operator, but Synovus, formerly Husky, well, Synovus and Husky merged. They're not long ago, or Synovus bought Husky. So reading between the lines... Because they'd have more information than you and I would have regarding the status of that floating production facility. So here's what they've done. They've removed Terranova production volumes from its 2023 corporate guidance. So whether that be the unknowns about how long the continued repairs will take, how long it'll be before they float it back out and start producing again, or maybe they know that it's not going to happen this year, period. So Suncor has stopped giving us timelines for when they think the FPSO will be back out there. And between that and Synovus and their corporate guidance, it looks like it might be a little bit longer than we all anticipated. Some 800 direct jobs with that uh, particular oil production field. So not great. Remember, one more time, $200 million of cash straight to the companies, $300 million in royalty relief. And now no real firm understanding. Maybe the government knows, and if they do, why don't you tell us? Because, you know, between Synovus's work here and Suncor's silence on the issue, it looks like there might be extended time spent out in Bull Arm for that particular 
FPSO. Had a call yesterday about World Energy GH2. And, you know, there was an interview er earlier in the morning about the lack of transparency and secrecy and what have you. But there has been a number of public consultations, whether or not they're satisfying the folks who have questions. We had a fellow called yes, uh, yesterday, his name is Graham. And uh, another guy named Graham in the region, Graham Oliver, who we've spoken to in the past when there was conversations regarding the potential for fracking onshore. Graham Oliver was not that person who called. It was another fellow. But he's all in. So if you are on that part of the province, on the port of port Peninsula, and have attended some of these information sessions, you know, it seems like they're divulging an awful lot of info. I've certainly seen an awful lot of info. Is there anything missing that you have specific questions about? Whether it be what it looks like, what it feels like for a comprehensive, for what people call a full environmental assessment. So if you think there are things that we don't have answers to, let's start asking the questions. And even if you want to talk about the framework surrounding royalties for the province and what the big upsides will be, there's certainly economic upsides. There's no doubt about that. But if there's a specific question or two or three that you haven't been able to get details or answers to, let's try to talk about it here on the program. Okay, back into the house. So we all know it's been a tumultuous stretch at Memorial University. And it's not an overstatement to say that it's a critically important uh, institution for not only currently and academic status, but it's a big part of the economy. So, you know, to try to get things back on even keel at Mon is in everybody's best interest. So between the strike and the issue regarding Vianne Timmons and the tuition doubling, all the rest of it, the Premier has now said he's willing to talk with the various stakeholders, the different sides, about what additional funding might look like. Because when the province was going to phase out some $68 million of support for MUN, it led to a decision made by MUN about doubling tuition. We absolutely have to have a landscape where uh, higher education, post-secondary education is accessible and affordable and manageable. They've taken that money and put it into the province, uh, the province of Student Loan Program, but MUN is on wheels. And so the Premier is making reference to if it's unstable, which it is, then whatever conversations need to happen about providing more stability. Now, no commitment to additional funding flowing to Memorial University, but a willingness to talk about it. So anyway, I think that's possibly very good news. Okay, let's go to PSAC, and we know the strike continues, and there's been some moves made by Treasury Board in their open letter to Canadians, most specifically drawing a line in the possibility for remote work. But there's a group of accountants in the country that are asking for an extension to the tax deadline, which is at the end of this week. Well, pardon me, it's um, the 1st of May. So they make reference to the fact that CRA did offer some grace periods and extensions during the pandemic for filing your taxes. So I hadn't really thought it all the way through about what the implications will be because people still had ample opportunity and heads up about tax deadlines and opportunities to file. But of course, with CRA workers out, it makes it extremely difficult to speak with someone at CRA. As a result, this group of accountants are saying that it may have a real negative impact on many low-income Canadians. The issue regarding that group of people, and I suppose anyone who gets a government benefit, it's based on your tax filings. So if you're late, you might miss one payment, whether it be for child tax benefit or a senior's benefit, if you don't have your taxes filed. So that's a fair question. 
and why is CRA so obstinate on it this time when there is absolutely a withdrawal of service, opportunity for Canadians to deal with CRA directly? You can indeed be on hold for the entirety of an afternoon trying to get answers to some very fundamental questions. Not everybody has the want, the will, or the know-how to do all of these things online, which makes life so much more easy, but not everybody does it. So I think they're asking a fair question. You know, given the circumstances... And when we look back at years past during the pandemic and some opportunity for a little bit of grace period, not to say people don't have to file, but maybe just a little bit more time as we see how the strike shakes out and, you know, give people a chance to actually get this done properly so that they don't miss out on any of the benefits that they would be eligible for if they file their taxes. So that's a pretty big one. And given this, and this is not new, there was thoughts and conversations about potential further labor unrest. People will be looking very closely at how this strike wraps up, whether it be on pay or remote work, whatever the case may be. And the driving force and the comments you hear many times from the leadership at PSAC is about wages not keeping up with inflation. Now, they're not alone on that front. But the thought is, is if they get any traction on this, then you'll see other groups say, hey, they're right. My wages aren't keeping up either. But then we also have to factor in something that people complain about, or justifiably so, is about inflation. There's distinct worries out there that one of the contributing factors to inflation was more money chasing less goods or services, which will absolutely be the, uh, the outcome if we say, for instance, if the 155,000 strikers get what they want in the terms of 13.5% raise over three years, that'll have a contribution to inflation and the inflationary pressures. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it's one of the factors. And you, I think you probably will see labor unrest be a big part of the conversation in this country throughout the entirety of 2023. Last one. We're hoping to speak with Nancy Reed from the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities this morning. There's a driver shortage at Go Bus. And as a result, you might not get a seat on the bus. You either will get your booking confirmed or put on a wait list and then just sit back and hope for the best. So maybe Nancy can fill us in as to what's going on there, maybe some potential solutions. We're on Twitter. We're Fiosium Open Line follows there. Email address is openlineofiosium.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, we're coming up to uh, the coronation of King Charles III. And uh, again, as we had in back in September at the passing of the Queen, um, we have the question about the relevance of the monarchy and whether we should hang on to it, etc. And I think eventually the time will come when we rid ourselves of the monarchy. Um, but I don't think it's anywhere near as an easy issue as people tend to think. Our whole government, etc., uh, system, our parliamentary system, etc., is all tied into it. Our legal system, etc. But I think it's even more than that. Um, I am a dual national. I am both British and Canadian. Hold both passports. As a Brit, I did not have to swear allegiance. When I became a Canadian, as all immigrants do, we had to swear an allegiance to Her Majesty the Queen, her heirs and successors. Now to His Majesty the King, his heirs and successors. We may remove the monarch from Canada, but then we are left with all of these immigrants during the time of Her Majesty the Queen and now King Charles, who have sworn a sacred oath to the monarch and their heirs and successors. 
we can remove the monarch from the the head of state, but suddenly we have an internal issue with all of the immigrants who have become Canadian citizens who have sworn an oath, and an oath is a sacred thing. What do we do? How do we manage it? I don't think we can remove monarchy, even if we don't think it's it's a good thing. I mean, I had the highest respect for the Queen, not so much for Charles. <laughs> but I don't think we can remove monarchy without some form of a civil unrest occurring among all of the immigrants who have taken an oath to the monarch, their heirs and successors. I think it's, oh. it's something a lot of Canadians don't think about who have not immigrated. The immigrants would all know about it. But how many during the 70 years of her of her reign have come to these shores and become Canadians and taken that oath? That's a sure. huge number of people. I think by default, if the monarchy is no longer part of our system, then that oath doesn't have the import that it may have the day you took it. And they're not the only... Are you, telling, are you telling me that just the government can switch off my promise, my oath, and, and my sacred oath to... to uphold the monarchy? No, you Are you can, telling me that the government can David, do that to my oath? Well, you can maintain your commitment to your oath uh, as much as you see fit. And, I mean, some of these things are the pomp and circumstance of some of these types of proceedings and celebrations or ceremonies. Same thing with elected officials. They've all sworn an oath to the Queen, and now we'll have to swear to the King. And the coronation, I believe, is on the 6th of May. He makes some interesting yes. points that it doesn't, it's not quite as simple as people think it might be. It's, and it's beyond, you know, inside our parliamentary system, we can still work under the Westminster system as we have since the beginning. Uh, creation of the country, we might have to just back out all the paperwork and swearing to the Queen and the role of the Governor General and the Lieutenant Governor, those types of things. We can maintain the system without the inclusion of references to the Queen. Add to it, look inside Canada's military. There's a distinct adherence Ooh. to the monarchy. There's all kinds of regiments and platoons named after monarchical uh, branches and what have you. So there's more to this than people might think, which I agree with your concept in 100%. But with the oaths and what have you, simply change them going forward. I mean, is there a solution beyond by default? We will no longer say it out loud. Those who have already made that have sworn that particular oath. I mean, their personal commitment to it, because I'm not even sure exactly what it means, because we're not living in the country that is the home of the British monarchy with opportunities for uh, chaos and confusion at the Tower of London. So I'm not even sure how people deal with the oath when they say it and what they even think it means in their own minds. Oh, I, I agree with you, some of those, but like the the police force, the, the judges, the judicial system, the military, etc., the oath there is almost a form of we're upholding the laws of the land. And it is... It is a symbolism of that, but uh, and in other nations where they've declared independence, um, yes, and where you're looking at Caribbean nations mm -hmm. where you don't have many people immigrating into those nations and they are removing the monarchy, fine. But here we have so many immigrants coming in and part of the issue of becoming a Canadian is that they must swear an oath of allegiance to the monarch. And it's not to the government of Canada, it's not to the Constitution of Canada, it's not to the Charter of, of Rights for Canada, which we could do. It is to the monarch, their heirs and successors. And I think that 
if we want to change it, it's got to be something that's going to have to be uh, factored in over a period of time that we say, okay, the oath uh, of citizenship now will be to the government of Canada and the and the um, the Charter of Rights and remove the sure. oath of allegiance to the to the crown, but I- just have to those two items, and over a period of. 50 years, 60 years, then we will no longer have this issue. But right now, you're going to have people who have sworn an oath to the monarch themselves and their heirs and successors right to this very day um, that will live for another 50, 60, 70 years, and that you cannot turn off an oath. I I wonder what some immigrants even know what they're swearing to. I mean, as a Brit, you would have a much uh, clearer understanding of the relationship between the monarchy, not only for British citizens, but also for Canadian citizens. I wonder how many people coming from different parts of the world, the Middle East or Africa or what have you, even know or really care about what they're swearing that day. They just want to get on with their lives. So I I just don't know what impact or how many immigrants even understand exactly what that oath really means. Because... I'm not entirely sure what we're suggesting by swearing that oath either, to be honest. Well, I I know I have a few friends who are of Irish background who will not become Canadians because they won't swear the oath. Well, I have friends that won't stand for the procession when the governor general or the lieutenant governor comes into a room. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, of Irish heritage, so I'm not number one monarch anyway. Uh, I'll I mean, that at that. like I had, the highest, I had the highest regard for the queen. I think that sure. she did an incredible job. And to think that we expected her to continue to do a job long after the age of what we would consider retirement, when many of our families would be in the seniors' homes and struggling, and we expected her still to continue on her royal duties. I I have the highest regard for her. I don't really have the same feeling for Charles, but I have taken the oath. The monarchy, I mean, it's in large part credit to the Queen that she was able to keep it together with all the family issues and there's some serious chaos inside the family itself. The way that some of the trips have gone into the Caribbean and countries that really gave very unkind welcomes to uh, Kate and William, for instance. So, And then, yes. I mean, you look at uh, Harry and his issues with his own family, what have you. So there's a lot of turmoil inside the family itself. In reference to King Charles, I think... To a man, to a woman, there was a lot of respect for the Queen. But when you look at the recent polling uh, surrounding King Charles, not so much. And I think there's a major question to be asked inside the monarchy and its supporters as to whether or not uh, Charles has the gumption and the leadership and the respect that the Queen had to keep the things going, keep them on track, and keep the family not under control, but to help manage those issues in the public. I don't think people have a whole lot of time for Charles, to be honest. No, uh, and I think uh, the break with tradition, I mean, the monarchy is basically held by tradition. So the break with tradition where he's married somebody, he himself is divorced and then married a divorcee. When you look back, the queen only became a queen because her uncle did the same thing. That's right, George. I mean, you, you know, you look at these things and you're like, oh, my goodness, how on earth do we uphold it? Um, And I think the Queen had something else going for her, as did her father. They went through the Second World War. When you have a major conflict and major issues that attack a nation, you have a figurehead that stands up and people rally toward them. And I think whenever there's an issue like that, a country pulls together. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think, and her and service I think went King, a long way. Yeah. I think her father and she both held that respect. They went through those years and they were there for the people during that period. There has been no major issue, thank God, uh, for the current king. Uh, and I pray that there won't be. But I think that that changes our perception of the leader of the nation. And I mean, the Queen was there for so long with so many prime ministers and so many other governments with their heads of state. She was stability in a world that was constantly changing and and having problems. And she was st- she was stability and she... She represented people in a very incredible way. So I have the highest regard for her. But going back to the relevance of the monarchy in Canada, yes, I've heard the issues with our First Nations people with their treaties having been signed with the Crown. Uh, and And I've heard other issues of that sort. And, of course... All of our politicians and our, uh, you know, our, our uh, military, etc. All of that has tied in, and we've got our whole system of government is tied into it. But I think you, those things, a government can change, and we can say, okay, we will become a republic, or we will become something other than a monarchy. That's fine. The government can do that, and the nation can change. But you cannot sure. change an oath that okay. people have taken. And I think that there is an issue that people are not thinking about. An oath is an oath. and an oath. Understood. You go into court and you swear an oath to tell the truth. And if you don't, you're held in contempt. Yeah, and when lawyers are called to the... Uh, to the uh, when the lawyers swear in, they pledge allegiance to the Queen and consequently now next to the King. And the Queen served. Of course, her husband, Philip, was also a serviceman. Her grandson yes. served, which is an important feature of British life. They have, obviously, deep-rooted uh, respect for the military in that country. I'm not so sure we mimic it as strong as we should in Canada. Uh, David, I appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for this. Thank you. You're very welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. All right. Uh, so interesting conversation about the future of the monarchy. You know, people talk about the cost. It costs Canadians in and around $60 million a year. So people will refer to the governor general or the lieutenant governors as figureheads. But remember, they actually do still have a distinct parliamentary duty on several fronts. So can that be uh, navigated out and other people in roles that we call whatever to replace those parliamentary duties? Absolutely. So if you want to pick up on what David had to say or anything else under the sun, do it after this. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. Welcome back to the show. There's three people that are vying to be the next permanent leader of the PC party of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Lloyd Parr, Tony Wakeham, and our guest on line number two. That's Eugene Manning. Good morning, Eugene. You're on the air. How's Patty Daly this morning? Hanging tough. How about you? Not too bad. It's a bit cold. Good working weather, as we call it at home. But uh, listen, Patty, uh, prompt to my call today. Uh, we have an update coming this afternoon on the horrible crime and uh, murder in Harbour Grace that happened there a couple of weeks ago. And uh, also on your on your website there this morning, uh, we're in year four of what seems to be an intimate partner violence uh, murder in Con River. And uh, even on your newscast this morning, you were talking about the docket uh, is as long as your arm. 
We have a crime issue in Newfoundland and Labrador that uh, is growing and it's not being adequately addressed at present. And uh, it's something that has to be brought to the fore and discussed, I think, in the, in the public sphere more often. Yeah, there was a shooting yesterday afternoon. We've heard from the Crown Prosecutor's Office, Stats Canada. The numbers are quite clear. The rise in violent crime, gun violence and otherwise is really taking off. But when we talk about provincial government, provincial government matters, what are you suggesting is not being done or what controls that we have at this level of government as opposed to the federal government when we talk about the Criminal Code of Canada and what have you? Well, Patty, in particular, uh, you, you pointed that the crime severity index and shows that crime in rural Newfoundland is up over 34% in the past 10 years, second highest in the, in the country. And that's not just in the volume of crime, but in severity. As to what we do about it, in, first of all, there's funding. And I see that the government in the last couple of years has increased funding to the, uh, to the RCMP services here. However, last year, the RCMP even failed to spend $4 million in that. There's no better uh, way to show lack of planning the fact that the, when a government department returns $4 million of their budget because they had no way of spending it. Uh, the RCMP here in Newfoundland land currently has 30 uh, over 30 vacant positions they are out in january i think the vacancy rate is around eight percent once again the fir- the highest or second highest in the country and i believe that's a hard vacancy that doesn't count people in sick leave and everything else as it relates to what the provincial government can do as you know, the RCMP actually here in Newfoundland Labrador is a contracted police force, and that's on a 70 to 30 percent cost shared with the federal government. And uh, that agreement was renewed in 2012 to 2032. But there's a number of areas where the provincial government could get to work today to uh, increase our security and the level of comfort that people have in their own homes, both in urban areas and rural. In particular, um, Patty, the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia just released their report uh, on the 30th of March, unfortunately due to the mass shooting in Port of Pitt, which is a, a terrible event. But they have a whole section of their report dedicated to policing in rural, in, in rural areas, and in particular, the contractual relationship between the RCMP and the governing jurisdiction. There is Nova Scotia, but as you know, a lot of things that apply in Nova Scotia can easily be applied here. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We have just had a massive, massive inquiry looking into this and outlining ways we can improve, whether it be training, uh, response, um, addiction and mental health issues and all these things that the government could be jumping on today to make people feel more comfortable in their own homes and not be fearful when they lock their doors at night. Yeah, enforcement obviously is part of this. And then people talk about bail reform because how many times do we hear a story where the accused is charged with whatever crimes and breach of conditions or something along those lines? So, yeah, bail reform, sentencing guidelines, enforcement, but none of that gets back to under having a better understanding of how, why, where, and who is committing these crimes. Now, if you ask or if you listen to people that work in the courtrooms, they'll tell you that somewhere in the neighborhood of 80, 80% of people that go through the courtroom are dealing with the mental health issue and or an addiction issue. So maybe a bit more attention on the prevention side too, in addition to talking about, of course, there's got to be all sorts of conversations about incarceration and enforcement and the judicial system and sentencing and bail, all of those things. But we're not doing a whole lot when we talk about enhanced attention to who and why the crimes are being committed. And if it's 80% of folks are dealing with a mental illness, and not to say that people who have a mental illness are not just automatically criminals, that's nothing nothing like that is coming out of my mouth or is in my head, or dealing with an addictions issue, we've got to put some pretty keen focus there too. 
Oh, Paddy, I agree. And I think uh, a larger discussion here is um, I was having a conversation with a fellow last week. I was out around and they said uh, we were talking about home. And my wife gets mad when I says I'm headed home and I'm headed to St. Bride. She kind of gets upset about it sometimes. But home is where when you show up, you have to take you in. That's how Buddy put it. And I thought it was a good way to put it. A lot of these issues and crime and addictions that we see in big cities – they end up back in rural Newfoundland, and we have an age where people come home and because they might have had problems or otherwise. And unless we start to address, it comes back to my point, the government has to be addressing these things, not just individual silos, not just justice, not just health care, not just mental health, physical health. It has to be taken in the whole. And if we don't address, to your point, these drug addictions and mental health concerns, and we put the training in place, and we put the services in place for these people, then it leads to an increase in crime. It leads to a situation where you have the, the Crown Attorney's Office needing more staff to deal with the amount of violent crime coming through. It, it leads to people not being comfortable in their own homes. There's nothing as unsettling as you're in, you're in an outport town and you call the cops and you see the cop car going up over the hill back into the attachment and you know you're on your own for the rest of the night and you know you have these people in these communities that have all of these challenges and the services may not be for them, which is an issue in and of itself, but it is a responsibility of the government to make sure that people feel safe in their own homes, Patty. Yeah, I don't know. Dispute that, Eugene. And then in rural Newfoundland, there's also the lack of access to services that might be a feature of living in a major center like St. John. So all part and parcel has led us to this point. You know, I've always, well, I, I do struggle, and I think member, many people in the media do struggle with trying to talk about these issues a way that's realistic and pragmatic, not, you know, fanning the fuels of, of uh, fear or trying to make people scared out of their mind and afraid to open the door and all that kind of stuff that we see sometimes emanating from south of the border into our psyche. But we have to talk about it in realistic terms because it is what it is. We can't pretend it's not there because consequently things just get worse when we do that. You know, everything perpetuates or everything gets worse in the shadows. So I do try somewhat struggle with trying to how to talk about the crime issue because I, you know, inevitably I'm going to get emails this morning. You might too, you Gene saying, you know, why are you doing that? Everyone's now all of a sudden afraid. Hey, it's not me doing it. It's the numbers on the ground. It's not that long ago. We had a couple of instances where we were told with active shooters close by where I live or where one of my sons was working to lock your door to stay in. I mean, so it's not me and you making it up for the sake of, of making your political hay or for me to draw calls or ratings or emails. It's just real. And so we have to talk about it. Uh, I, I agree entirely. I've been in similar situations. And this comes back to my point that the, um, if, if you get a chance, or to you and your listeners, uh, turning the tide, aptly named this report from the mass from the from the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia, not in dramatic fashion, but lays out a very a very layered approach. Whether it be it goes from intimate partner violence to community policing um, to working with and taking direction, they point out to, to your point that the police services, in particular the RCMP, has to do more to take direction and learn from people on the ground in the communities, and it's it's a holistic approach that is not a one a, a one thing one one sweep swipe of the pen that fixes everything but these are long-term approaches that have to be taken because this situation whether it be in uh, across Canada or Newfoundland Labrador it's all trending upward and whether you want to say uh, we're being dramatic or, or, or trying to stoke the fears the reality of it is these things are happening and just because we don't talk about them doesn't mean that they go away, Patty. Yeah, and of course, inside the Nova Scotia tragedy, it was the massacre. It was also communication or lack thereof, whether it be between the RCMP and the general public. 
public and of course miscommunication with different levels of uh, law enforcement then the relationship of former Commissioner Lucky with the federal government so it had a wide reaching uh, discussion as it rightfully should because if you're just focusing on one side of the crime story like we hear some politicians do and they're doing it for a reason and it's not helpful but that's unfortunately part and parcel with what political discourse has become in this country uh, I appreciate the time Eugene and thanks for the thoughtful chat about an important matter Thank you very much, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, it's one of those things, right? You know, I have no interest whatsoever in talking in terms and tone that is in an effort to make people afraid, whether it be through the pandemic, whether it be discussing crime issues. But when we don't talk about things like crime, and please don't, t- your takeaway hopefully is not anything regarding fear from that conversation. But until we shed light on it, and talk about the different moving parts, then things will inevitably just get worse, which is to our collective detriment. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, NL. That's Nancy Reed. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Good morning, Penny. Thanks for... uh Thanks for taking this call today. Happy to do um, that. So there's long been concerns with the Go Bus. I mean, for a while there, they had a different booking system that wasn't working for people, and now it's kind of step further based on driver shortage. What do we know? Um, let me start by saying I haven't spoken directly to Go Bus around this issue. Uh, personally, I had a, a family emergency over the last few days, and it wasn't possible for me to do that. However, um, I have received a letter from GoBus, uh, and I've been in the process of speaking to some of my colleagues, I guess, in, in the disability community around the issues that we're seeing. Uh, but I've also heard from another number of individuals around it already. And what we're seeing right now is that GoBus has, um, I guess, uh, initiated a wait list opportunity uh, at the end of the month, at the end of April. Uh, for users of the system. Um, The letter says that they're having staffing shortages and it's been difficult uh, to to accommodate the number of ride requests for rides that they're getting. So there'll be a wait list uh, established. And uh, they say in the letter that they're doing this, and I'm trying to quote, uh, to avoid setting up false expectations of riders. That's really concerning uh, for me as an advocate in the community. GoBus was established to provide equitable transportation for those who weren't able to avail of the regular public transportation. So in the city of St. John's, we have Metrobus. Many people with disabilities, of all types of disabilities, can't use a regular Metrobus. And so GoBus was established, um, and there's a lot of transitions over the years, but GoBus was established to provide equity for folks who can't use Metrobus. Now, the GoBus system always had it fl- has its flaws. Um, when we think about equity, that means that we treat people a little differently so that we can all have, and have the same result. And so GoBus was a little different than MetroBus because it was never available, I guess, um, you know, on call when, you know, when it was convenient in a spontaneous way. If I wanted to go to a friend's house or just go for coffee, I can't just call a GoBus and have it show up at my door. That was never an option where a regular Metrobus user might be able to to just go. That's one area that we've always had concerns with, with GoBus. But understanding that it's a scheduled event, we need to do have the scheduling. But what we're seeing now is that now a person can call and schedule a ride, 
we're actually getting is on a list that maybe we'll get to that appointment. Maybe we'll get to, to, to go for coffee in two weeks with our friends that's scheduled and that kind of an event. We are not seeing equity for persons with disabilities through this. Uh, what we're seeing is an erosion of the things that we had that we had actually achieved as a community of persons with disabilities, and that's really concerning. The the um, the feeling that it's left by people very often is that they are less than. If there's a cut to be made, cut start with persons with disabilities. We see it over and over again. I'm not sure if there are Metrobus uh, cuts within the Metrobus system or what that looks like. I don't know if more Metrobus drivers can be trained to be GoBus drivers, if there's a solution there. But we've got to work together in some way to find solutions. People are absolutely being denied access to, to the community, access to, to the basic human rights, because these systems are really being eroded, uh, and we're seeing it over and over again in our, in our society today. When do people actually find out whether or not a ride is coming for them? Let's say I book a ride for this time next week, whether it be for groceries or a medical appointment or whatever under the sun. When do I find out whether, whether or not I have a ride? I don't know. I can't give you that, that answer. Uh, that's something that I'd certainly defer to Metrobus or to GoBus themselves. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean... I... It had been like that you had to make the request uh, in 24 hours. And I know that you know many things changed in the COVID era. And I think that today many organizations, groups, uh, businesses, sometimes it's valid, sometimes it's not. We use what I call the COVID crutch. Uh, you know, to, to make an excuse for that. And I'm not saying that that there isn't a staffing shortage. We recognize that there is a staffing shortage. But I'm not sure what, what that looks like today in terms of, um, you know, the wait times or, or what that looks like. I guess we should follow up with GoBus for some obvious questions about yep. the numbers of drivers, when the when you get your answer. I think I remember reading, and I, I don't know, I can't find the story here now. I think I remember reading, you get the notification midday, the day before your ride is scheduled, which, of course, is no cold comfort. It doesn't mean that you've been treated equitably by having that type of notification system in place. But right. we will follow up with uh, GoBus uh, themselves. And you said there's many examples of when there's a cut, it begins with persons with disabilities, whether it be programs or services. Do you have other examples we can add to the conversation? Well, um, I guess one thing that, you know, still is a memory of mine. We think back to the election of 2019. And of course, we were in the COVID moment and it was, it was the highest, you know, uh, state of, of, you know, of, of the uh, response or the emergency response at that time. And, um, you know, we went immediately to vote by mail only. And, you know, that was a real a barrier. It created an instant barrier for many people with disabilities because for people with disabilities, the voting in the traditional polling station was a choice that provided equity. Persons with low vision were able to use the system there and actually uh, vote in a way that was independent without having to involve family or friends. Uh, persons with uh, you know all types of disability, intellectual disability, different types of accommodations were available because of protocol that was initiated within the system. And so when it went to mail-in ballot only, that really created a number of barriers for many folks, uh, persons who would not be able to see to write the name of the person they were writing, uh, you know, they were voting for uh, all kinds of issues that we saw uh, immediately with, uh, with with that system for various types of disabilities. But again, it was just a stroke of the pen done. And, uh, you know, there's been lots of, of kickback from that. But it, it is another example of when a cut needs to be made, let's just do it. And, you know, how it affects persons with disabilities really often sometimes gets you know, considered later down the road. Nancy, appreciate the time. We will indeed follow up with GoBus as well. 
I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thanks. Nice to speak with you, Nancy. That's Nancy Reed. She's the executive director at Cardinal Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. So let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, caller on line number one. What's going on there? Man, oh, man. Hold it is. Let's go to line two. Joan, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I'd like to uh, make uh, a comment on the Go Bus. Sure. I have to say the Go Bus is an excellent service. I've been getting the Go Bus now for probably four or five years. I'm visually impaired. I do see some to get around. And right now, my husband is in hospital. He's been there for six weeks. And I've been getting the Go Bus every day in the morning and coming back in the evening. And it's excellent. Like, I call up and make my appointments, like, two or three days for, for each day. They call me at 7 o'clock every night and let me know that my Go Bus remind me. And they call me in the morning 15 minutes before they come for me. Then they'll call at 5 minutes and tell me got my Go Bus is on the way. So I think it's just a perfect service. Well, I'm really glad it's working for you the way it is, Joan. I guess the concern going forward is if there is a driver shortage that doesn't get attended to in short order, then folks might not have the similar experience that you are having, which is, I guess, the problem that we're trying to get out in front of here now. But I'm glad it's working for you. We've heard conversations in the past where it wasn't working for others and a variety of examples had been offered. You know, the snag with the booking system that was new some six, eight months ago or whatever the time frame was but this driver shortage at this moment in time is certainly going to be problematic for some and hopefully you're not one of those folks that is negatively impacted no i think uh, for me it's perfect i haven't had one problem since i started going into six weeks going back and forth to the hospital to see my husband it's been perfect and how frequently is that travel i'm sorry john i go every day yeah seven days a week and, and i get picked up in the morning about 11 and then I get back in, in the evening at supper time and there's never been a problem how's your husband uh, he is not too bad he has Parkinson's and uh, dementia now and uh, a leaky valve in his heart so he, he's waiting to go in a home so it's been kind of hard I'm sure it's been hard of course it yeah, has been it is. Uh, is the likelihood of going to a home very close by yeah, not too well. We have a choice of three homes, and okay. oh, the, the three of them are, are close by. Yes. Well, I'm glad to hear at least that much. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning, John. I'm glad the Go Bus is working for you. Uh, I wish you and your husband nothing but the best. And I know it's quite difficult. It is, yes. Thank you, Patty. You take care of yourself. Okay, bye. Okay, John, bye-bye. Yeah, we will follow up with Go Bus. You know, we need some and feel for John. Boy, maybe I shouldn't have asked. Uh, we will follow up with GoBus to get some better understanding. Maybe they'll know as to why there are short X number of drivers, how many drivers constitutes a uh, full complement, how, how many do they have now. bit better understanding about the notification process. And you know, not every appointment is created equal. And this is not to begrudge people to uh, ride to whatever they want to do. Go to their buddies and play cards. It's good enough for me because we have public transportation available to others regardless of what the, the task is or the chore is or the appointment is. So if we can uh, get some follow-up info, we'll do exactly that. I believe the caller that was uh, a little bit scrambled when we tried to get to him before, Joan, I think that caller is there. They'll kick off the second hour of the program this morning, Talking Crab. Don't go away.
Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number three, caller, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah, sorry about the uh, confusion there earlier. No problem. Yeah, I'm calling about the uh, dispute here now in the crab. Yeah. Yes, Patty, uh, we got a lot of this uh, a form there uh, Jason Sullivan got uh, set up there. That'll be my first comment. Okay. And, uh, what, does it, there, what does the form say? Well, the, the, the form is going on there is about, uh, you know, people who wants to go out and fish those crab for two twenty a pound. And we got another bunch of fishermen who don't want the other fishermen to go for two twenty a pound. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff on that site saying if you go, we'll be coming for you with uh, rocket flares and lights and we'll be throwing your crab overboard and uh, and stuff like this. And if you uh, if you try to voice your opinion on it, the first thing they'll do with you is block you. And, uh, you know, is there any uh, any uh, legal course uh, we can take there about those uh, threats on that site? Well, yes. I mean, threats are something that the police can deal with. I- I'm not surprised it's reached that emotional point for folks that are, you know, staunchly one position or another. I mean, from where I sit, and I'm not involved in the industry, so I don't, my opinion doesn't probably count very much. But if, if a harvester wants to go for the crab at 220, he or she should be able to do it without threats of having crab thrown away or, boats lit on fire or whatever the other threats are yes that's right and 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 uh like i'm also hearing that uh the, 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 the those individual families are being threatened boy oh boy not surprised no. but that's not good and uh another point there uh patty uh, about this this crab at 220 a pound if you can't go out and catch your crab for 220 a pound and make money you're in the wrong industry you know, the first thing the fishermen will get on say they won't get enough to pay their expenses. Now, if a, if a, if a businessman wants to go out and spend ten million dollars on a boat and ten and five five more millions five more million on crab licenses, that's that's his that's you know that's his prerogative. But if he don't budget it, budget his money right, he's gone in over his head. He can't pay the interest. He can't pay this. And he can't pay that. It'll go bankrupt. That's a bad decision on his part. And like I'm in here, I'm in here in three PS, right? Yeah. I got forty thousand pound of crab. I can leave tomorrow. I'll steam thirty five miles. I'll set me pots. I'll bait me pots. I'll come home. I'll go back out and I'll haul them, and I'll have about seven hundred dollars worth of expense. And if I land five thousand pound of crab, it's ten or twelve thousand dollars. So I'm making money. Yeah, I don't know if it's the same could be said for, I suppose it depends on the vessel and how far you have to steam, what other expenses you might have with the size of your crew and all the rest of it. But even if you factor in the cost of bait, what's bait cost this year? Well, I'm hearing around 230 a pound. Yeah. But see, Patty, like if you make a bad dis- decision, bad business decision, you know, that's not that's not everybody else's problem. You know what I mean? Like I can buy another lease tomorrow here in 3PS, I'll pay probably $300,000 for it. But when I look at what I got here, my two small enterprises I got here, it's not it's not feasible to buy. So I won't buy. So if the crab is five dollars a pound next year, I'll make a few dollars. If the crab is two dollars a pound, I'll make a few dollars. That's the way I run this little thing I got going on here. Yeah, and fair enough. You should be able to fish uh, freely if you have your license and a quota and get at it if it suits you and your profitability or whatever the factors are. That's the issue here, though, isn't it? 
It's yes. people are taking a gamble. And so be it. I mean, business is a gamble at the best of times. And when you had a season like last year, I guess it just gets into their mind that, well, it's going to be like that again next year. So I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to get a bigger vessel. I'm going to hopefully get a bigger quota and make more money. When, in fact, it's so bloody volatile that those gambles are exactly that. You'll win some, you'll lose some. Yes, that's right, Patty. And, here, and another thing, too, Patty, here in, 3, in 3PS, the, the, the bigger boats is paying their crew. 10% of the catch. And in the other bays, they're paying anywhere from 4 to 6%. And out of that 4 or 6%, the crew got to pay for fuel, bait, and groceries out of that. We don't we don't hear nothing from the crew members on that. And with the crab open, if we can go out and fish a few crab, and if we got nothing else to do, the crew members can leave and go get another job and make a few more dollars instead of being sat down waiting to get this crab. Fair enough. And, you know, I haven't seen that. So is this on the Facebook Fisherman's Forum that you're seeing these comments? Yes, on, uh, I think it's called NL uh, Fish, Newfoundland Fisher, Fisherman's Forum. Yeah, I get the notifications. I spend very little time on Facebook, so I haven't perused that, but I will now. Yeah, and like I said, you, uh, and if you make a neg- negative comment, the first thing to do, they'll, they'll uh, bar you. Yeah. Because I, uh, I made a comment there last year about... Uh, about uh, a boat working on the salmon farm that's involved in the in the fishery. First thing I was I was uh, not allowed back on the site no more. Yeah, I guess they're picking and choosing <laughs> what yeah. uh, voices they want to hear from. Yeah, that's right. But Patty, I'd like for you to uh, check into that, and I'd also like uh, some more fishermen uh, to call in that wants to get this crab. Happy to do it. I'm happy to reach out to Jason Sullivan directly. Okay, thank you. I can do it. Thanks for the time. Okay, thanks. Bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Ted, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Good morning to you. Oh, my goodness, it's a bit cool. Paddy, I'm just going to just make a couple of comments. On the, uh, uh, this year, uh, the hockey cards that are coming out, you know, from the I get them at the coffee shop, right? About the Legends ones? Yes, very impressive. Very, very impressive. Cool. I, I tell you, with the cards, some of the cards that I've been, you know, I've been getting, uh, because some of these players, I can go back and not only listen to uh, by radio, but also, you know, watch on television, right? Some of the great players like McKeith, the Hulls and all these, and the Big Bird and all them from Montreal. But yeah, Robinson, yeah. No, no, they're, they're, they're and, oh, yes, an important point here. Uh, uh, also... I've been picking up quite a few. I just pick them up. Sometimes I give them away for some of the boys, for the grandchildren, that right. But I have been saving. Uh, I took. I start saving the women's uh, team, right? The Kansas National Women's Team, right? And in, I've been picking up some of those in the in the pack. They go back to 1990. But the main reason I, I called you on on the on the forts, on the hockey, uh, on the cards, is I. I'm not, I was never into like I always like I told you before a great uh, Gordy Hall family, but I picked up a Wayne Gretzky uh, Junior card when he played with the Sioux, and year uh, now it's uh, back quite a while ago anyway. But I think that, uh, there was a card I picked up. I bought it right. I, I, that's something I picked up in those packages when the boys had it right, and on the back. 
said there in writing, as a 16-year-old, Gresky became, he, won, he was second in scoring in that league. That was tier one, I think, at the time, right? 16-year-old now. So curiosity got the best of me. I said, yeah, well, if he was a 16-year-old and he, won, he got second in scoring, who was the overall scoring leader that year? So I didn't, I, I didn't know that in my head. I got to be honest, right? So I, I, I kept at it, and I got one of the boys to do a bit of research. And I'll tell you who it was, and I think you will be quite pleased. And when you hear the name, you'll probably ring a bell with you, right? Who was it? Bobby Smith. Oh yeah. Who ended up playing with the Montreal Canadiens? He was drafted by uh, Minnesota, I think. Played more, right? a lot of his career in Minnesota, yeah. Yeah, and I. Uh, I was a curiosity, right? Because I'm like that, right? If I get something, I like to know. I like to. I like to do a bit of history, right? Also, yeah. One more point on that. There was uh, three cards out that year, where where Wayne uh, wore different numbers. Uh, the one I got, I'd like to get the other two, just for the fun of it. I, it's going to be hard to get, I think. He wore number nine, and that year, like that, I suppose just that. At that time, they could, they could wear three different numbers. This is facts. This, you know, this is not baloney, okay? I can't remember the other two numbers right off the head, but anybody listening to me or anybody is interested in that, if they go on there and, and do the research there, they got all this stuff to do research, right? I'll tell you how those cards came out. In a box of cereal called Post, okay? So there's three different... Wayne Gresky Jr. cards, and uh, the the red, the white, I I forget the other color, and three different numbers. I thought that would be of interest to you because you're, you know, you're a good sports guy. You know. Yeah, I like it. Now Gretzky originally wanted to wear nine because his hero was Gordy Howe, number nine. Good for you. Yeah, I was the number nine man. So was Bobby Hull, and so was Rocket Richard. Yeah, and he did wear number nine as a member of Canada's junior team at the World Championships. But yeah, that's the issue with nine and Howe. And of course, it's that famous photograph. Gretzky as a child with Howe got him hooked around the neck with the stick, which is a. Uh, pretty famous photograph. Yeah. So yeah. I never, I, I never, I never saw that one. But uh, look, I called you because I, I'm really impressed with the cards, right? And that's the legend, right? One of the boys flashed the card at me this morning that I never saw before, and it was one of Johnny Bauer, where the puck struck him in the forehead, and they showed the puck and everything, right? You know. So there's some great cards out there. There's some not only on our national team, but also on the uh, like with the uh, with the ladies. I call it ladies hockey, right, or women's hockey, right? And I do have because last year I picked up uh, uh, one of my favorites, um, Mar- Marie Philippe Poulain. I'm sure you're familiar with her. Right? She's been great, right? One of and, the clutch hockey players of all time. Yeah, Ailey Wickenizer. I got her and that, right? Yep. But sometime when you get the chance, or someone is listening, okay, and. Uh, let him have a look at what I said, and okay, and, and on this rescue thing, he wore three different numbers, and your Montreal man, Bobby Smith, 
not to beaten overall that year. Yeah, Smith, I wore his number, number 15. Uh, he won a cup with the Canadians in 1986. He actually uh, owned the uh, Halifax Mooseheads in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League for some 20 years. He just sold his stake in that team uh, mm. a couple of months ago. So, yeah, I'm familiar yeah. with Smith. And you mentioned Johnny Bauer, one of the strangest or most interesting nicknames, the China Wall. Uh, won four cups with the Leafs, did Johnny Bauer. So, anyway, talk about the value cards just for a brief second. I mean, I have a couple of cards that are worth a little bit of money, nothing extraordinary, but the most expensive hockey card ever sold is the 1979 OPG Wayne Gretzky. I sold at $3.75 million just a number of years ago, which is extraordinary. Gretzky's uh, the second on the list as well. There's a Bobby Orr card that sold for over $275,000. A Connor McDavid card that's out there. An autographed The Cup rookie patch, uh, I think somewhere around $225,000. There's a couple of expensive Howe cards that have sold for over $200,000, which which is just unbelievable when you think about it. And I always, you know, think back to when we were buying hockey cards as kids because we all collected them. And what did we do? We stood them up against the wall and knocked them down with other cards, <laughs> ruining them. <laughs> Eddie, you mentioned autograph cards, right? Yeah. And you know, with my conversations with you over the years, right? Uh, remember a couple of years ago when the, uh, there were so many autograph cards out with uh, Tim Hortons? Okay, I had them out, yep. right? And I was fortunate enough to win an autograph card. And uh, I, uh, you may not remember that now because we've had a lot of chats over the years. But I've still got that one. And that one is uh, uh, Philippe Zadina there with the Red Wings. You know, uh, I don't think he had, he's Czechoslovakian, right? Yeah. But it is an autograph card. It's an official autograph card. But I'm not worried about, the, like I said, the value. But before I go... Um, Last time we spoke, we spoke on the NH on the playoffs, right? And I, uh, I said that the Leafs had a lot of scoring punch. Turns out to be correct, and I think that they're in the pro. I think they're going to win that the next game. I think they're going to take this series in five games. Okay, sure. I, I'm not a, I'm not a Leaf fan and or anything like that, but I think the Leafs are going to wrap this up. I think it is Thursday night. Uh, I still, I like Colorado in the West. They're in tough with Seattle. Seattle are a bit of an upstart. They look pretty solid. Yeah, and I, uh, doing the hockey pool, I didn't stop to think. I went with, uh, I went with uh, Minnesota, not realizing Dallas is a big team. I think Dallas is going to win that series. And the Vegas Golden Knights, I haven't got anybody from them, right? I got uh, just just the hockey pool I do, right? Now, we could talk on this all day, but I, I like playing the pool. Sure. And Anyway, uh, quickly, yeah. before I have to go, uh, Ted. Hey? Just quickly before I have to get to the break. Yeah, uh, I'm going to, I'd like to see it happen. I don't know if it will. I'd like to see an all-Canadian, uh, what we call all-Canadian final there with Leafs. And I think them Oilers, if they get past this round with L.A., I think they will. Uh, that would be a great playoff as well, okay? They look tough. Yeah, they okay. really do. Thanks, Ted. Uh, thanks for your information on the, on the card, your, uh, on your Patty, on that, because uh, I'm not worried about, you know, not the money part, but uh, it's interesting. And you do know your stuff for a young fellow, okay? Uh, I, I know someone who has a, uh, a George Vesna rookie card, so that's got to be somewhere like 1911 or something or other like that. And, of course, named out the, the Vesna Trophy, named after George Vesna. He yeah. also has a uh, Maurice Richard ca- card from 1951, oh, yeah. I think. So yeah, they're, they're, they're worth yeah. some money. One, 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 one quick one before I quick go. One. Was there ever an Alec Faulkner card? I would imagine there is. Never, never. I've got Cleary, but I've never seen uh, seen Alec. Yeah, okay. I'm sure there is. I'll reach out to the family to confirm, but there's got to be an Alec Faulkner card. Thanks for your input there, too. You know. Thanks, Ted. Yeah, you're pretty good. All the best. Bye-bye. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right, let's go and take a break. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. Big thanks to the listeners who sent along some beautiful hockey card photographs. Also, there is a Alec Faulkner uh, hockey card. It was put out by Parkhurst in 63-64, thanks to the crowd. Let's go line number five. Say good morning to the owner-operator at Happy Times Daycare. That's Gail Sullivan. Good morning, Gail. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks. How about you? Awesome. I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so you, you had some... Um, um, I guess the opposition was on talking and I know Dave Williams reached out uh, to get some feedback from the industry and um, and here I am. So what, what is the uh, what, what's the most pressing topic that you're hearing in childcare because there's so many? Well, I don't know if what would be the most pressing I guess for individual families, whatever their concern would be the most pressing, but I think there's a long yeah. list. You know, there's, there's been a some, long list. Yeah, let's go with exceptionalities first because that's been really in the news and debated on the floor of the House of Assembly. You know, when you hear that children, for instance, on the autism spectrum or or have mobility issues because of the lack of an inclusion worker, the children have been actually discharged from daycare, including one child who apparently last year did not need an inclusion worker, but this year told that they do and consequently no daycare space. How do we address this? Because it's not a short-termer. Go ahead. Right. No, this is a great, that's a great way to start. And actually, I I would like to comment on that particular uh, situation because she's not the only mother in that situation. So, Patty, what happens from our end, from a child care early childhood educator and the licensee and the administrator and who has to deal with this? So we accept children, you know, when they come in the first few days, you really... Some children are so mild in in ADHD or are on the spectrum or what have what what have you. So it's really hard for us to detect it from the get go. Children come in, yeah. Sometimes they can be a bit wild and cry and act out, and you just think it's because they're they're not used to it. And as they progress, and as their development, and as the the exceptionality, let's say, or inclusion behaviors come out. Now, I hate using these terms, to be honest with you, but these are the terms that government use, so I'm going to go with them. So for simplicity for people. So children that that do require, that sometimes doesn't happen just overnight. So, you know, to be asked to leave a daycare after being there for a year, that wasn't taken lightly by the daycare. I can promise you that. That is because those, those behaviors have progressed to a point where the child does not fit into a, a one to eight ratio. Do you, do you understand? I do. Yeah. So so that's really unfortunate, but that is what we see. And then, you know, when you bring this up with parents and they go, Well, I don't see that at home. Well, it's really different in a in a in a good preschool program setting, uh, where the children are, you know, doing this and engaged in this and this activity and that activity. And when the children really can't cope with it, we see that. But you're not going to see some of those things come out at home. It's not the same environment. You know, you've got the T V to distract them. You have their own their own space it's their comfort level at home it's one child maybe with two parents dealing with these behaviors they're not around other children at home maybe to see these so it's really really frustrating and i know it's really frustrating for parents to hear sure and i mean at home they'd have possibly for some sensory controls in place room to roam inside the safety of their own home upstairs downstairs into their bedroom kitchen wherever nan or pop or mom or dad are yeah yeah and if the tantrums are happening, you know, it's in a it's in a controlled environment in their home. In a daycare, you know, children do I mean they tantrum all lots of children tantrum. But it's it's kind of socially um 
I won't say not acceptable, that's not the right word, but we have to deal with that while dealing with other children. And it's impossible to do. And the ECEs are tapped. There's nobody to, to find. Like, I feel terrible. Inclusion? I'm, I was always a very inclusive center. I am very well trained in uh, autism myself. I understand it. I feel terrible not taking those children. And I have to, Patty, to protect my ECEs and the other children in that group. So, you Every know. child is entitled to one. One to eight is the ratio. Every child in that age, in that group, is entitled to that one staff's equal attention. The hopefully and, the and adjust- exceptionalities take more. Hopefully, Sorry, the adjustments made to the ECE pay grid will bring some back into the fold, and hopefully, more will uh, consider entering the ranks of an early childhood educator. Let's talk about some of the implications that came from 2017 and the changes. So, everyone had to get their level one training, and we need professionally well-trained early childhood educators. Of course, we do, but consequently, some people didn't take up even the government's offer of some financial support and the five years grace period before they got their level one certification. So. That's one part of it. Also, I wonder if part of the short-term solution could be doing what they've done in the K-12 system for daycares is to allow retired teachers to work for up to three months without impacting their pension because you know full well there would be retired teachers out there who could fill that role. They'd be familiar with the setting. They'd be familiar with children with exceptionalities and their interactions with others. So that, to me, seems like one of the short-term solutions that we can implement immediately. Yes, absolutely. I totally, Barry Patton was on with you, I think, uh, Monday. And um, I totally, I I applaud Barry for bringing that up. That's a really great uh, solution. Short term, let's let's try it for a year. Let's get some of these kids back in these days. There's no space in the daycares, but, you know, so, but let's, let's, let's try to accommodate the ones that are lucky enough to have a space before centers have to ask them to leave. Another really good short, short term solution is there's a lot of Ukrainian um, people with really, you know, education backgrounds. Um, They would be wonderful in a classroom in an inclusion uh, setting. We can't hire any of them for any reason unless they get their accreditation from the the ASINAL uh, Association. So, you know, these people are are in a classroom to assist and and you got your lead ECEs in there anyway. So this would be really great and they they can really fill a lot of uh, emergency gaps for inclusiveness in our in our daycares. Okay, a couple of more quick ones before we get going. I mean, government says that they can't do anything about this necessarily, like forcing daycares to take on one child or another. But, of course, in a regulated space, they have some ability to do something more than shrug their shoulders. Uh, Let's talk about the wage subsidy lead time or lag time. Has that improved at all? Um, The subsidy? Yeah. For the ECEs? Yeah. Um, Well, there's still um, on, on our Facebook page yesterday there was and these are only people who are speaking out a lot of people don't speak out like me um they there's about 30 that we heard from that have not received their uh their retro supplement from when the wage grid came in in January 1st to April 1st there are still some that have not received their supplement um and the um uh, there was the retro, and then there was this uh, bonus they gave. I think they've been paid. I'm not going to say for sure, okay. but the retro pay. So that's that's a lot of money still. You know, that's that's retro. That that's not in the person who earned its pockets. They're doing without. 
they're doing without their pay. And that's not okay. Uh, Gail, very quickly before I have to go, you know, we hear from families, not only children with exceptionalities, but how difficult it is to find a spot for a toddler. Is there a specific reason why? Because of the level of care and attention a toddler might need versus, say, a four or five-year-old? Yes. The Simple problem, as that. The problem is basically, Patty, I say birth to two. It's really age one. Most people, most women take or parents take off uh, birth to one. It's actually from one to two years. That is the, the problem. And this junior kindergarten is not solving the problem. That's just taking four and five-year-olds out of the daycares that they're in already with a higher ratio and putting them into a school with the same. It's a, it's a daycare. It's still daycare service. So it's not solving the problem. It's not at all. And the problem, Patty, is all stems from the operating grant program. And, and there is going to be a review of that. And I sure hope government really listens to us this time because it's futile to do a review if they're not going to listen to the the people who it's affecting and can i just add one more thing sure i you know the way it is right now and this is what we're feeling from a lot of licensees is why don't why don't we just charge what it costs to house a child in a in a day just like it caught in a school system charge the parents and the parents go to the government and get reimbursed for the the extra fee from the ten dollars a day to what what we charge and they go to the government because it's that's that's one solution to it. Fair enough. That we're feeling now. Fair ball. I appreciate the time this morning, Gail. Thank you. Well, thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. Gail Sullivan, owner-operator at Happy Times Daycare. Uh, let's take a break. We'll come back. There's a caller in the queue who wants to talk about sparrows. Now, is that Mike and Johnny or Robbie Sparrow? Probably not. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Morning to you. Patty, two or three things before I get to the topic uh, of uh, birds. Uh, I was reading a, a book. I just finished it. It was called Once Were Warriors. Uh, it's it's by a, an author, an Australian guy, a New Zealand guy, Alan Duff, and he's half Maori. A Maori, I should say. Yeah. Uh, the book caused a really, really big uh, sink down in that area. He acknowledged the evils of colonialism and what happened to the uh, Maori people and so on, the mistreatment and the stealing of lands, buying of lands and all that. But his argument was, and I think it probably applies to other areas with indigenous people, he argues that at some point, people have to move beyond victimhood and blame and adapt to the society in which they find themselves. And this is what caused the controversy, uh, him saying that. He believes that uh, the young Maori children have to be educated and have to ad adapt to a culture that uh, we would call the dominant culture. And he argues that over history, when the world was being uh, settled, that's what we had. We had one culture, one group dominating another, and that, that was the story of history right up till now, I suppose, where the, the earth has been settled, and you you don't get that as much anymore. But anyway, uh, I'd, I'd recommend that book if anybody wants to, a good read, Once Were Warriors, Alan Duff. Sounds pretty oversimplified, but fair enough. Yeah, that's well. I'm giving a, a little bit of, a, of an overview there, but uh, that's that's uh, yeah. Um, 
I was listening to uh, the Leaf commentator there, and he said he knew that the Leafs were going to win. He said after four to two, and he said it wasn't just a hunch. He said I just sat back and, uh, and waited till the end result. And I thought about uh, I'd been reading about ESP for uh, for several decades. And uh, there's a guy, Ingo Swan. He's he's one of the the best known uh, uh, psychics in in the United States. But we've all heard things about the sixth sense of animals when they uh, before an earthquake or before a tidal wave, right? They some of them run to the hills, some of them go home, and we know about bees that uh, go back home before the rain starts. And you can go on with examples like that in in, in the animal world. Right now, some of that is uh, intuition, but some of that is actually uh, sensory properties that they have that we don't yes yes uh, sensing uh, different atmospheric pressure right. and so on and then you've you, you you've got in humans you've got uh, people uh, during an accident feeling that at home or if a son or daughter died the woman feeling it usually more for women than men and you got uh, literally millions upon millions of examples like that and uh, Swan argues that uh, we all have this ability. Uh, it's just that it hasn't been uh, developed. Is is was of course uh, fairly well developed, and they proved that in labs with the work for the CIA for years. And um, he argues that uh, it's there, and science can't do much about it in the way of study because it's hard to study that kind of thing in a lab. But we should pay more attention to it because literally, uh, since uh, r- the written history of the world, these examples have been, have been coming through to us. But anyway, but why why should we pay more attention to pseudoscience? Uh, I, I, excuse me, uh, pseudoscience? Yeah. No, it's not. A, I, I wouldn't. Well, ESP, second sight, they're very clearly classified as pseudosciences. You know, clairvoyance oh. and psychometry okay, and telepathy yes, and. That's what people label it as. It's, it's not really a science because it hasn't been studied. You can't study stuff l- like that in a lab. So uh, I, I, th- th- that uh, phrase pseudoscience is a way of putting this evidence down uh, because, as I said, it's very hard to, uh, to study it. Yeah, but evidence of a twin feeling their fellow twin's pain or you know, having a sense that some loss has been experienced by someone you love and that kind of stuff, that's probably very, very real. And I think I probably had some experiences that would nudge up against that. But yeah. then if you take it a step further with you know, psychic, ability, psychic abilities and clairvoyance and that type of stuff, I think they're rightfully labeled as pseudosciences, right? And many people out there practicing in that front are probably on the full-on grift. So my question to you, Charlie, is why should we uh, pay more attention to something like that? Uh, to what end? Well, the, 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 the end, as I would see it, is, and, and again, I, 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 I strongly uh, say pseudoscience. You can't label something pseudo. It, it's not being claimed as a science, uh, not at least by, by most people that, I, that I've read. Uh, if that ability is there, as he says, uh, the fact that we could develop that for the betterment of, of, of humankind would, would, would be, be the way he would read it, that we know so little about it, that uh, perhaps we should pay more attention and try to learn more about it. But uh, uh, the precognition and things that go on, uh, psychokinesis and all these things, uh, uh, from my reading over the years, many, many books, this is, this is really, really common stuff. 
but it's outside our reality boxes because most of us are materialists. Where whatever we can sense with our five senses, that's it. And uh, w we stay within these reality boxes to our uh, uh, shortcomings, he would argue. But anyway, psychokinesis I is okay. yeah, psychokinesis is also interesting. So the whole term ESP, if I remember correctly, there was a couple of psychologists at Duke University that coined that particular phrase of ESP. And when they tested for psychokinesis, it was all about rolling dice. So it's like when they play cards, right? So you, you need the ace of hearts and the next card to be flipped and you say, Ace of Hearts, and the Ace of Hearts comes up. That's not necessarily a uh, psychokinesis. It might be just good guess, right? Same thing when they were testing with rolling of the dice, you know. Uh, come on, snake eyes. Bang, they throw the dice. And then sometimes it comes up snake eyes because of the uh, the odds of rolling a pair of ones. So anyway, I appreciate the, the concept and the thought and an interesting topic. If you look at the studies uh, for that in, in labs, and it's not a very good place to, to study that kind of thing, uh, many of the studies have shown that these statistically come up with these people way, way more than the, than the norm. But anyway, it, we could go on all day on that. But we won't. <laughs> Interesting story uh, uh, I read while I was waiting to, 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 to come on there. You know about the water shortage in Arizona, right? I do. Here's, here's, here's a case where the power of the dollar speaks. The Saudis through a company, I forget the name, Falfoni or something, they're growing alfalfa and using enormous amounts of water in Arizona, which is already short on water. They're not allowed to grow it in Saudi Arabia because they, uh, they're conserving water. And guess what? They use the alfalfa to send back to the Saudis to, f to feed their cows. Now, if you want to see insanity at work... Can you imagine in Newfoundland if we were begging for water, that a major company would come in and buy up land and use the water and send it back to their country for cows? But anyway, I thought it was the heights of uh, insanity. But Well, parts of the southern United States are as dry as a bone. And, you know, certain crops like that, that example, I've actually seen that example being uh, quoted many times. Even in this country, the imposition of Nestle uh, with their water rights and the amount of water they're I'm going to say taking. Maybe some people might refer to it as stealing. Uh, just another crop that always jumps to mind when we talk about water is almonds. I mean, if people have ever looked at the almond water footprint, you would be astonished. It takes upwards of three gallons to uh, grow one almond plus yeah. shell and husk. Three gallons of water to grow one almond. I mean, I know people like almonds. I personally really enjoy almonds. But can you imagine the yeah. amount of water? They... California, more water is used to grow almonds than people drink. Yeah, I've, 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 I've read about that fairly extensively. At, at least it's people in California, although I disagree with using water for that reason totally. But, 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 but a company or a, a nation with all kinds of uh, uh, petrodollars coming in and taking water from locals. But anyway, the last, the last topic is... Very quickly, because i got to go. Yeah. Uh, I was t saying about the, 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 the uh, no sparrows uh, this year of, of, of any kind and way down last year. I've been conducting a little survey as I play Scrabble with people uh, uh, in, in, in the States. Okay. And two places, Wisconsin and Massachusetts, uh, most of the birds they've seen are birds that overwinter. The migrating species, like I, I was talking about, are down or none. 
So this is not just a Newfoundland phenomena, and I've talked to other people as well as these two, but these, these are real birders with, with uh, great gardens and so on. And I thought it was interesting that they would back up what I was talking about the other day with, with the shortage of these birds. But anyway, that's it. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, sir. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Now, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk tick season with Dr. Maggie Burry, Ma- Maggie Brown Burry. Right. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the veterinarian, Dr. Maggie Brownbury. Dr. Brownbury, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? Not too bad. Now, this will probably start off with a very strange uh, question, <laughs> but here comes tick season. The only reason I know anything about it is when we lived in Alberta, there was lots of warnings about ticks because there were some pretty serious issues. Do the severity or different types of ticks change season by season, or is always the same tick with always the same risks? Uh, so it the ticks there are certain ticks that are more active at different times of year um it has more to do with your geographic location than anything. Uh, there's two ticks we worry about in Canada for the most part is the deer tick or the black-legged tick, which is more common in the eastern Canada. Um, and it is actually more active in early fall through to late spring. Uh, basically, if it's too cold, it won't be active. But if it's above four degrees, um then they can be considered active. So you're actually more likely to encounter one of those ticks on a mild day in the winter versus the summer. Uh, But the other tick we see sort of somewhat commonly in Canada is the American dog tick, and it's more active during longer days. So you are more likely to see those uh, during the middle of the summer. Okay. What are the, so what do people, what can people do who are the outdoorsy folks who want to still be out regardless of tick season or not? So what do they need to know about how to protect themselves? And then we'll get into some of the potential health harms. Yeah, so the in Newfoundland, the risk is pretty low. And, and the best thing for you to do is sort of discuss your lifestyle with your pet, um, with your veterinarian to figure out sort of what is the best preventive for you. Like if you um, are living in St. John's and your dog doesn't do much outside of your own backyard or walking through the downtown area, the risk is going to be very low. Um, we worry about ticks more if there's a lot of either long grass or like the dead Um, leaves that kind of build up on the forest floor. So if you're spending a lot of time sort of out in the woods, so you're hunting dogs, they're going to be at a higher risk. Or if you travel off the island to the mainland, ticks are a huge problem in like Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. So if you're traveling at all, um, then your need for prevention is going to become a lot higher. And what happens when and if you're bitten? Uh, so if your pet is bit by a tick, um, basically it latches on and it sort of feeds on them for like 24 to 48 hours um, and gets progressively bigger um, as it does that, basically filling up with, with its blood meal. Um, and the longer it's on, the more likely it will transmit disease, which is the, the big concern. The bites themselves are not a huge concern. It's more that they can transmit some pretty serious diseases. Uh, and if you're in a place where ticks are very prevalent, like Nova Scotia, or if you've done an activity where the chances of a tick is higher, the best thing is to just do a really thorough check um, of yourself and of your pet. Uh, they're very small. Like even at their largest, they're smaller than a dime. So you have to do a really thorough check um, all over your dog looking for any kind of little dark bump or it might look like a skin growth that wasn't there before. Um, Lots of pictures online if you Google it, but 
do so with caution because uh, some of them are gross. But um, but definitely just sort of checking all over. And then if you find a tick, it's very important that you remove it properly um, because their head is burrowed under the skin. And if you leave that behind, they can end up uh, getting an infection or a significant irritation. So if you're not confident in how to remove the tick, um, going to see your veterinarian to get their help is a good idea. So... Uh, how shortly after a tick bite can I get an effective antibiotic? Um, so it, it varies from tick to tick, and it varies on the disease that's being spread. We're not going to know for sure if your pet got infected right away, regardless of how long that tick has been on um, on your pet. So the recommendation is if a tick was latched onto your pet, especially if it was engorged, suggesting that it had been there for a while, uh, is you get a blood test screening for Lyme disease and a couple other common tick-borne diseases um, 14 days after the tick was removed. Because that will ensure that anything that was going to develop has developed. Uh, it's a simple blood test. A lot of clinics can do it in hospitals. So you'll get the, the answer sort of within 24 hours if you have to be concerned. Um, if you were recently traveling or this is a puppy, I will say like the vast majority of ticks that I've seen on dogs have been either puppies that, or rescue dogs that people have brought in from the southern U.S. Um, or dogs that recently joined the family on a trip to the mainland. Um, so if you come from an area where there's a lot more concern about disease, we may put them on uh, preventive antibiotics just because the risk is higher uh, but it does take 14 days before we can reliably test for the disease. So people would be familiar with Lyme disease you say there are other uh, issues I can't remember the name of one but this was once again an Alberta based story and whatever disease yeah. that the dog got caused these incredible seizures and consequently Ooh. was the end of the dog's life so what other diseases are possible with uh, ticks? Oh my goodness. Um, so I'm, I struggle with the pronunciation of some of them, but uh, basically some of them do affect the nervous system causing tick-borne encephalitis, uh, which is when you have inflammation in the brain, um, which can cause seizures. Um, there is uh, Lyme disease is a big one. Yeah, or okay. Ehrlichiosis is another one that we test with that, that bedside test. Um, and, of course, there's also the issue where um, Lyme disease can be a very ambiguous kind of disease. Um, you know, there's lots of stories about people having Lyme disease and it being a very long time before they get uh, protected. Um, accurately diagnosed uh, because it just can kind of just cause them to be lethargic uh, and just not really want wanting to move it can cause them to have uh, what's called a shifting lameness meaning like their one leg seems to be sore but then the next time you're checking it's a different leg that seems to be sore um, they might have a fever um, and uh, and all of those things are not specific to Lyme disease, right? So that's why if your pet is, is sort of sick in a way that we're having a hard time explaining, um, even if they haven't had a tick on them, your veterinarian is going to want to check them for tick-borne diseases uh, just to make sure that's not what we're dealing with. Uh, my poor old brain, I'm just trying to think, I don't know, it has nothing to do with anything, but the dog, I think I, it had something to do with the geography of uh, the province, but I think it was called spotted fever, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
Uh, yeah, the Rocky Mountain. There you go. All right. Yeah. Boy, I'm, I'm struggling here. Yes. Although that Don't was worry. I like ago. I forgot all about that one until you started to say spotted fever. So, yeah. Okay. And, and that's not that's not one that we see over here as much. Lyme disease is the one we worry about the most on the East Coast. Fair enough. And very quickly before I let you go and get to the news, are there more common spots than not on my pet for a tick to uh, burrow in, whether it be on the uh, paws or behind the ears or something like that? Uh, if you just sort of think about the fact that the ticks are sort of on the grass or in the leaf cover on the ground um, and your dog is walking through the area, they are more likely to be sort of on the underside of the dog. Um, that being said, most of the ticks that I've removed have actually been on the head of the dog, so it might be the dog sort of sniffing around and shoving their face in. Um, obviously, it's going to be much easier to find them if your dog has a low or a a short hair coat. Um, if your dog has a really heavy hair coat, it's more likely to be in the areas where their fur is thinner um, because the tick is able to get to the skin more easily. Really appreciate the time, uh, Dr. Brownbury. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. As veterinarian, Dr. Maggie Brownbury, so beware, especially, uh, I guess, uh, as she mentioned, in other parts of Atlanta, Canada, much worse and much different scene for ticks and the implications they can have for your pet. Anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time left. The topic, entirely up to you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go line number one. Dominic, you're on the air. How you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you? My name is Dominic. Uh, listen, I call you because I'm in the correctional system of uh, Bishop Hall. Okay. And I want to mention about the fact, like, we got um, a food supplier actually not following, you know, like, the guideline of the portions and also, like, the diets we're supposed to get for more than two years now, apparently. And that person is actually supplying the correctional system and get paid for. And she actually delivery 40% to 50% less than what she should, you know, really uh, supply the, the gel for. So my real question is, is then we going to get reimbursed for that or we just, you know, pay for a certain, you know, like service, then actually we don't get back? How would someone get reimbursed? What do you mean? The inmates? I mean, like, they're going to call that a fraud? Or, because, I mean, if you buy a kilo of rice for like 10 bucks and you receive like 500 grams of it, would you consider it like you get what you pay for? Uh, of course. So my question would be, so who's paying? The correctional system must be paying the bill, not the individual inmate, or am I missing something? No, it's, it's, it's actually the, 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 the correctional system paid for. So my, my question is, you know, the supplying the, the, the food in Bishop Falls is going to reimburse the correctional system so they can buy us, you know, the rest of the food we never have. Or, you know, we're going to continue to starve in that uh, establishment because of her. So what has it meant for the amount of food that you're served? So the amount of food, like example, we say uh, we're supposed to have like 175 grams of yogurt, uh, 250 ml of uh, fruit cane, and we're going to say a normal amount of eggs, like we're going to say two egg burrito example, we're going to have the answer to that. And even sometime, uh, in, in if we talk about the fruit himself, we will receive like a content more than less than 75 ml of it, or we're going to receive 100 grams of yogurt then. Um, my, my real question is, 
why that can be possible to pay for a service that we don't receive. If you know the citizen of Newfoundland is going to pay for 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 feeding those inmates, and you're going to get ripped off for more than fifty percent of the order. That's kind of a bit, you know. I, I don't get it. You know, what I mean, like I've never been in. In, in a situation where I have to buy a service or a product and I receive the half of the order. Yeah, I didn't know this was happening, so I can try to do some follow-up. How long have you been in Bishop's Falls? For a month now. And uh, I talked with, uh, you know, the, the authority of the, 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 the establishment, and, you know, they, they, they do their best, and it's not them. It's actually the way that the contract are actually given by the government to the people and, you know, in the, the, the private companies. So that's mean... The, the the assistant superintendent of the, the the correctional system cannot do anything about it because it's over him. So it's not even the people in the the, the, the jail because they, they think it's awful too. You know what I mean? Like they, they see that every day and they're like, I, I, we don't understand how we cannot fix that because it's it's just you know like basic you know things. You need to give food and a bed and that's it pretty much. You know what I mean? Like it's not going more further than that. Yeah, so I mean, I'll do some follow-up as to who let the contract, how it's different from the past contracts for the provision of foodstuffs. Uh, and I guess this so, extends throughout the entire correctional system, not just Bishop's Falls, or do you happen to know? And she got the contract for more than two years. Now, her contract is past due for more than three three months, and she still has the contract because she probably got a cl- uh, close like she has to supply until they find somebody else. But in the meantime, what I'm thinking is the justice ministry probably don't, offer enough money to make people take that contract you know what I mean how long more are you going to be in I don't know I still don't have my disclosure after nine months I'll do some follow up on this Dominic I didn't know that it was happening so I appreciate the info thank you so much take good care bye bye and I saw it just float across the corner of my eye I'm a corner of my screen about asking what he's in for nah Let's go. Line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Line number three. Hello. 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 Yes, ma'am, you are on the air. Hi. 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 Hi, this is Carol. I'm calling concerning my son and my grandson are living with me now for two and a half years and their stepdad. He's 48. My grandson is 15. I don't know if anybody else is having the same problems. Uh, we've been trying to get him with Newfoundland Labrador housing. He has been approved two and a half years. Okay. Still, still nothing. My grandson is sleeping in the same room with him in the same bed. He needs his own space. I'm after trying everything. We go out with different companies looking at apartments. About 20 more people after looking, and he never gets a look in on any of those apartments. My grandson has ADHD and tricks, and he really needs his own place, and I don't know who else to turn to. I've turned to our MHA down here. His secretary is excellent, but I just can't get nowhere with this. So, I mean, yeah, the wait list to get into Newfoundland Labrador housing is really quite long. How long since the approval has been in place? Oh, two years now. Two years. Yeah, and his furniture is in storage now over two uh, two years since he came with me lived two and a half years ago. And that's in there two years in storage that 
trying to pay $200 a month so he don't lose his furniture. You know, it's just so hard. And it's not easy for him. He's 40. He got a subsidy from housing to help him to find a place. Uh, we went down to that place in Rollins Cross. Still nothing. They put his hopes up. Yes, we get your place. And here it is now, months later, and still nothing. The place is Rollins Cross. Are you talking about uh, uh, Stella Circle? Yeah, we've okay. been down there, and he filled out, and we filled out applications for co-op housing, and it's amazing. I just can't, like, how long that there's houses. We've I've been up on McLeod Place looking. There's three up there or two up there vacant, and they've been there like it now for months, and nobody doing anything with them for people to have a home. Number 21 is one, and number I even called housing about 21, see if they could get it done. Some people need homes. And, and so he needs thing. simply a two-bedroom unit. Two-bedroom unit. That's all he needs for him and his 15-year-old son. And, I mean, it gets to a point when you're living with your parents and your stepfather, it's not easy. My nerves are gone. I mean, I'm working now 54 years, and I, it's so hard trying to find him a home to live in. Is your son also working? No, my son right now is on social services. He was. He's on social services right now. He has a fractured tibia. He done a few months, two months ago, and he's still recovering from that. But he is on social services. He has seen a doctor about all these things that happened over the years with him. But he's a good guy. His son is super. But just can't seem to get in housing. So the two you said that you know were vacant, are they vacant because there's repairs required? That's probably why. Probably so, but they're vacant now, I'd say, a good year, and nobody's doing any work to them. I called them. There was one that was up there. They'd done the work to it. People moved in. Only two weeks ago, there was a girl with a child who went to housing, and she's in a place. Okay. Well, I hope he gets uh, a spot sooner than later, and I, I really don't know what the wait list looks like, but I know it's extensive, to say the very least. Oh, I do too, and I know there's a lot of people out there who need homes. But like, how long do you have to wait? You're trying so hard. He needs my grandson needs to be settled in a in his own space. I understand your concern, and Carola, hopefully things work out for you. But thanks for your time. Hang in there. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. So there's no one you can put me on to the Well, if you've gone through the minister's office, that would be the only place to really put somebody. I mean, housing directly, but uh, Minister Abbott responsible for Newfoundland Labrador Housing. If you've gone down that path, that's probably going right to the top of the food chain. So other than that, I wouldn't know what to tell you. So would you have Minister Abbott's phone number that I could call? I can get that for you, no problem. Hold on a second. Please. There we go. And let's uh, see here, it should come up pretty quick. His uh, constituency office number is 729 yeah. 37 yes. 09. 09. Yep. Thank you very much. Good luck. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the pedestrian mall and whatever else you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to Lennon Forsyth. Good morning to the owner operator of the Sprout Restaurant. Uh, that's Elizabeth Meisick. Good morning, Elizabeth. You're on the air. 
Hi, how are you doing? Doing all right. You? Good, good. All right, first off, before we get going, the bravocado on spelt or the beet salad, delicious. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little pedestrian wall. You know, it has been a boon for some of the businesses, not all, on Water Street when it opens up. I personally really enjoy it. But, of course, the businesses on Duckworth Street feel very much left out. What do you have to say? So I guess our issue is that we're trying to get some support from the city. Um, we tried in 2021 to be included in the mall. That didn't work out for us. So we're trying to get them to make good on some other offers they made to support us. Previously, they had offered us an art market. They had offered us an investment in marketing strategies specifically for Duckworth to try to to extend some of the success of the mall up to us. They had offered us improved signage. But so far, none of those things have happened. And while none of those things have happened, about 15 businesses on Duckworth Street have permanently closed or left the area. Our voices is quieter now than ever. A lot of the businesses that were working with us in 2021 to try to get the city to support us as well, they've closed, they've left, so their voices are not added to our cause. So Duckworth is sort of quietly disappearing before your eyes. If you take a walk down it, there's maybe 15 for sale signs, a bunch of abandoned storefronts with graffiti. Um, when the city made them all, they said their goal, their mandate, was to ensure the downtown pedestrian mall encapsulates and is good for everyone in the greater downtown area. But it couldn't be farther from happening right now. So while businesses on Duckworth Street do support the mall, it's lovely, it's beautiful, it's great for Water Street. We are not being supported by it as the city promised us we were. And they've sort of changed their tune from trying to help us and work with us in 2020 and 2021. Now they're saying that's not their responsibility. It's not their job. They never offered us any investment in marketing. It's not their job to spend money on us. It's not their job to spend tax money ensuring the success of private businesses, even though it could be argued that's what they're doing with them all. Um, So we're trying to get them to take some responsibility. They're trying to shove that responsibility off onto downtown St. John's. But they used to want to work with us and help us, so I'm really hoping we can get them to change their tune back to wanting to collaborate, wanting to support all of downtown instead of just being okay with half of it silently disappearing. Yeah, some of it disappearing, including my friends uh, Robbie and Dana, get stuffed, which is terrible after 17 years, I think, they were in business. So what does support look like? I, I don't know if the right phrase is what does adequate support look like, but what... What do you think can be done? I think the thought of maybe having a pedestrian mall on both Duckworth and Water might be a logistical concern for some. But what are you looking for specifically? Yeah, that's not possible. We did try that in 2021, and it was a big disaster. So we are not looking for anything like that. We're not trying for anything so ambitious. Now, we're just looking for things that they already offered us. So they had offered us improved signage. They said they'd put signs, and that would help people on Water Street know about the businesses on Duckworth. But the signs that they came up with said, explore more downtown. And they said, restaurants, retail. And they had arrows pointing in every single direction. So I have been trying for two years to try to get them to put some map signs down in the mall, like a mall directory, so that you can look at that sign and know, oh, hey, there is a record store on Duckworth. There is the only... Filipino restaurant, the only Afghan restaurant downtown on this street, the only two vegetarian restaurants, lots of specific other unique businesses that I might like to check out. So signs that actually contain some information would be really helpful for the businesses on Duckworth Street so that people on Water Street would 
have a reason to come see us. Like if you put a sign that says there's more to downtown or there's restaurants up that way, well, why would you go check that out? There's a bunch of restaurants right here. So we need some signs that are actually signs, and that hasn't happened. They've said that they did that, that they improved the signage, but they definitely haven't. And they promised us in 2021 an art market for Duckworth Street. So that would be something they could do, something they could advertise to bring people up like, oh, hey, we've checked out the mall. Now let's go check out the art market. And also the investment in marketing strategies that I had mentioned, this was an option they did offer to us in 2021, but they're trying to backpedal on that now, which is very disappointing. Um, They invest hundreds of thousands of dollars into the success of the Water Street Mall. That money might not be invested in marketing. It's invested in security and cleanup. But you don't really need to market an event that's kilometers big and months long. If you pay to make that event happen, the media and the public are going to notice that without any additional marketing. So we need a little help to get some of that attention to move up the hill. We were promised that it would, that it was guaranteed that the mall is absolutely going to be good for everyone. This was what the city told us. And they haven't done anything to make that the case, and the opposite is happening. And we really need to hold them accountable for this and not let them just pass this off to someone else. We don't want more businesses like get stuff to shut down. It's really disappointing. Yeah, uh, listen, fair enough. You don't need necessarily to market the downtown mall. Word of mouth is a pretty effective marketing tool for it. So when it comes to something like the uh, art market, isn't that something that the businesses and in conjunction maybe with downtown St. John's pull off on their own without needing the city to do anything? Maybe some, you know, kick in a, a subsidy here or there or something along those lines. But wouldn't that be an initiative better served uh, being executed by the folks, the business owners in the area who know exactly what would work and know their clientele and what would be exciting or enticing to them? I don't think that the businesses on Duckworth Street are willing to put the work in to do the city's job and market their own businesses to like to collaborate and get that done is a huge amount of time effort money like we are so focused on just keeping our individual businesses afloat from day to day in light of all this stuff that's happening it doesn't really seem fair to say that we can give hundreds of thousands of dollars to create a magnificent event on water street but the businesses on duckworth should all collaborate together and fund their own success that seems like a very untenable position and it's certainly easier to say than do the city has way more resources personnel time finances than downtown st john's or the tiny little small businesses on duckworth street and they really put us in this position and promised they wouldn't so i think that they do have a large degree of responsibility to take for helping us to get out of this like we would love to work with them but we do not have the time and resources that they have and they also promised us this support and haven't delivered well i mean a, a promise should be uh, delivered upon you know even when it comes to signage we can't be talking about enormous big bill here i don't know even if you take baby steps if i'm the city and i'm thinking well i owe some level of service and support for the business on duckworth if we start with signage which would be extremely helpful because not everybody who visits the downtown mall will realize what the opportunities are for other shopping or spending or eating on duckworth street so we can't be talking about a huge bill it's remarkable that they wouldn't even go that far it would cost so little like they've invested over a hundred thousand dollars each year into the guaranteed success of private businesses within the mall basically and they can't even invest like just a tiny bit in making signs that specifically say here's a map of downtown 
here's a picture that shows you all the different businesses within the mall, as well as all the different businesses right next to the mall, like little QR codes. So you can bring that up on your phone, go check out the websites of the businesses on Duckworth that you might not have walked by otherwise. It's really not a big ask. It wouldn't cost anywhere near what the mall costs. And it's something that they promised they would help us with. And now they're saying it's not their job. We can add it to our list of concerns to uh, discuss with whether it be a representative of council or the mayor himself. Anything else you'd like to add this morning, Elizabeth? Thank you so much for having me here. Appreciate your time. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Elizabeth Mizzick, owner-operator of The Sprout, which is really quite good, I have to say. Uh, let's go to line number five. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Patty, I uh, want to talk to you about two things, but if I could. Um, one is uh, yesterday, uh, my uh, boat, <coughs> Atlantic Bluefin 2, uh, had a, a crew member on her, got seriously injured uh, while fishing. And uh, <clears throat> the Coast Guard uh, uh, airlifted in off the vessel and brought him into Cornerbrook Hospital. And now, after that, he was airlifted to St. John's for uh, reconstructive surgery. I guess the best way I can describe it. Bad banging up. I just want to pull, throw the bouquet roses by to our Canadian Coast Guard uh, search and rescue uh, to both the uh, icebreaker division because uh, two icebreakers were dispatched from up in the Strait of Belisle to because he was fishing shrimp down off southern Labrador. Uh, because the, the chopper, the Comorant chopper, could not get out of Gander at the time. This was like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning because of freezing rain. But a couple of hours after the chopper did manage to get out, <clears throat> the uh, icebreakers were called off, and uh, they went out, of course, and lowered their SAR technicians and paramedics down on the deck of the boat, got the crew members stabilized, and uh, brought them into Cornerbrook, and they... Uh, got them patched up enough to airlift them to St. John's. And I just want to thank our Canadian Coast Guard for that and uh, for their professionalism and to thank God that we have them. And uh, on behalf of uh, me and my son, who's the skipper on the boat, and the family of the injured crew member, uh, I, uh, I, you know, if the Canadian government, in my opinion, spent all of our tax dollars as wisely, or for such a valuable service as that Coast Guard uh, search and rescue and ice-breaking service, then I think we'd be very happy in this country. A, a blessing, and God bless the people, that, as the Coast Guard is people. And uh, those SAR technicians and those helicopter people, they, they, they put the value of their life aside to rescue other people. And um, they're, they're just pure angels. I just want to say that, right? Well, I'm glad it worked out the way it did for you, Terry. And you're right. They're highly trained professionals that they are. I will add to it. It's great that you were able to access it. And let's please get the federal government to wake up and put uh, some additional search and rescue capacity in Labrador. I mean, just none. Ground search and rescue in place, but not even a fast rescue craft in Labrador is shameful. Exactly, and and that's a big hole we got in our system that hopefully will will get fixed. And the people of Labrador certainly deserve it, and hopefully with time and enough pressure, the the, the federal government will wake up and see that. Right? Hope so. Uh, now the second. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, I was done. Go ahead. Okay. The second reason I called in by <clears throat> is related to the current crab uh, dispute, uh, the tie-up. 
Uh, I haven't been very vocal on social media the year for a number of reasons. I'm getting whole and uh, <laughs> had my day at that, the creating enemies on social media. And uh, I've been just more or less an observer, listening to it all or, or reading it all on the fish, uh, Jason Sullivan's Fisheries Forum and uh, also some on what I call regular Facebook because I don't know what else to call it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, this morning I couldn't bite my... Well, not my tongue. My, I couldn't hold on to my typing fingers anymore uh, because, as you may or may not know, when you're listening public, uh, there was a boat left St. John's yesterday sometime to go to the crab grounds, but because of uh, social media hoopla and threats of violence and harm, possible harm to uh, that boat owner and their family and children and property, uh, they they uh, instilled enough fear in the person that they, I think, to my this now, they called the boat back. Uh, and I went on Jason Sullivan's forum this morning to say, I think that that's gone too far. You know, you should, uh, we can't go threatening violence and harm to our fellow Newfoundlanders. I mean, they are fellow Newfoundlanders after all, no matter what your opinion is. And I... Uh, said that I think it's time for you know Jason Sullivan's keyboard warrior supporters to or and for Jason because a lot of fishermen listen to Jason Sullivan to uh, tone their rhetoric back a bit and be more respectful and you know I said I, I support the tie-up uh, or the goals of the tie-up whether they're attainable or not I don't know uh, but I don't support this threats of violence, right? And they're not going to gain support by doing that. And, of course, he can't take criticism, so he booted me out of sight for a second time. <laughs> well, I tell you what, people have sent me some screen grabs or screenshots, and some of it is pretty severe. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. and I don't condone that, right? I mean, uh, you know, when you're advocating uh, violence, and then they'll cover it up by saying they didn't make a threat. Right? You'll never get them to admit they made a threat, right? You know, um, but I mean, that's all just smoke, smoke and mirrors, right? And uh, anyway, uh, I just wanted to say that that uh, this guy, Jason Sullivan, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, I, he, he ran for president of the SFAW uh, earlier, and the SFAW disqualified him. And uh, I would not want to be a fisherman in this province if he ever became president of the SFAW because. Uh, the minute you go against his opinion, he'll uh, he'll do something against you, right? He can't take criticism. He's uh, he's lacking something upstairs, right? Well, I'll leave that there. Uh, but I appreciate the time. I'm glad things worked out on the other side, Terry. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. How are we doing on the phone there, David Williams? When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. So during this newscast, pick up the phone and get in the queue. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. <laughs> uh, an emailer during the news says, uh, heard your uh, cheerleading for Hydro-Quebec again. <laughs> What? <laughs> uh, what the mention was of Hydro-Quebec off the top of the program this morning was that because of issues at the Upper Churchill, Hydro-Quebec saw an outage of, uh, that impacted some 500,000 customers inside their province. I don't know how that's, that constitutes cheerleading. It just happens to be an actual fact. So the conversation went on. 
to acknowledge the fact that the Upper Churchill plays a really important role in their portfolio of power generation for domestic customers and for customers in the United States. So the reference was that as opposed to thinking that it was a cheerlead for Hydro-Quebec, is that we actually now quite clearly understand how important upper, the Upper Churchill is to Hydro-Quebec. And so consequently, we, the question posed was what that might mean inside of these discussions or negotiations about the next 18 years until 2041. That's all, because that's been entertained. Premier Legault came here, came to us to begin those, uh, or, or I guess to continue those discussions. So we'll see where they lead. And I also went on to point out that the province did indeed strike a committee to look at the implications of 2041 and the expiration of the Upper Churchill contract. So the comments were pretty fundamental, is we are not going to be told exactly what goes on inside the meetings uh, between this province and Hydro-Quebec about 2041, but the outcome of the analysis of 2041 by a provincial committee, I think is something that would be helpful to uh, interject into the public conversation because I do think there's a lot of confusion about what 2041 means. I do think there's a lot of possibly uh, overly optimistic views of what the implications might be in the next 18 years. So what are they actually looking at? We don't really know. You can imagine the variety of issues. There might be some attention given to the next 18 years to increase uh, the revenues come to the province. I mean, we all know the numbers. Since 1969, the province of Quebec has brought in somewhere in the neighborhood of almost $30 billion. In this province, somewhere in the neighborhood of almost $3 billion. So the difference is obvious. So is there going to be any type of adjustment? It's hard to consider that to be the reality, given the fact that the province has taken the, the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec to court at least seven times and come up unsuccessful each and every time. So if they were willing to fight us in the courts, then unless they have some sort of built-in fundamental understanding that, wow, without the upper church, we're going to be up against it. Because unless they're going to build more dams to create more hydropower, then of course they're going to need the upper church to be part of how they... Uh, deal with their own customers, and they got some long-term contracts contracts in place. And you know, we talk about uh, magnitude. The Muscat Falls project, a maximum output of 824 megawatts. It's in a case of 5,000 at the Upper Churchill. So we're talking about massive implications insofar as the amount of power being generated. So yes, I don't think and I don't expect we're going to hear a whole lot of detailed transcribed uh, conversations coming from the meetings at the high level closed door meetings. But I don't see the downside in whatever the 2041 committee has discovered through their analysis uh, about what we can expect when that contract comes up. Because this has been a conversation that's been happening for a very, very, very long time. So a bit of information come from the government would indeed be very helpful. Also, a representative, I think of this person's representative, or a, a former member of Monsu, that's the student union at Memorial University, about the potential or the willingness of the Premier to entertain discussions about putting some funding back in play. So the, the tuition doubling, I don't know what that's meant for local enrollment, and I mean people from this province, uh, this, or this past semester and or the intercession that's ongoing now. It'd be helpful to get those numbers because if we don't have the data, then we're just talking about the emotions or the sentiment behind it. So the fact is that the government did not set the tuition 
the university set the tuition. Now, of course, it has a direct relationship with the fact that the government phased out some or is phasing out some $68 million in contribution to the university. So, yes, the two do play hand in glove. So what's going to be in the offing here? I don't know. But the premier very clearly uh, points out the patently obvious that it's been very tumultuous at the university in recent past. So whether it be Dr. Timmons and her being removed as president and vice chancellor and, of course, the strike, and we cannot have that apple card as upset as it seems to be at this moment in time. So whether that's going to result in any additional funding or the uh, restoration of any funding, I really don't know. Barry Petten, who is the education critic for the PCs, the official opposition, he makes an interesting point. He says that it maybe would be a good idea to hold off until the Auditor General has done her work uh, looking at the finances of Memorial University. Money's coming in and how the money's spent. Because, again, that additional layer and level of information can go a very long way into understanding what needs to be done at the university. And so prior to this phasing out of some $68 million, the total sum of monies flowing to just Memorial University were very much like the amount of money that the government of Nova Scotia flows to post-secondary institutions. The only difference being, I think that money was divvied up between seven schools in Nova Scotia versus just the one school being Mun here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. The, the, the emailer made a lot of different uh, points or cracks at some of the conversations we've been having, what's been omitted in that person's view. And, you know, sometimes off the top, if I'm trying to ask a question that may be of interest to you, and consequently you may be interested in calling on it, it was snow crap. So... I was asking what people think the government's role should be here, whether it be to encourage both sides back to the table. And the Association for Seafood Producers are really quite clear. They are not going to renegotiate a price. It is what it is. They say the market is collapsing, there's a glut of inventory, and consequently they are not going to go for any less or any more than what they've already set the price at, two, uh, 220 so they add additional numbers, and this just comes from the association itself. You can take it for what it's worth, or whether or not you think it's accurate or not. I'll leave that up to you. So they say that the market, uh, the cost for them to produce a pound of processed crab is around $3.38. So we're not talking about huge margins necessarily inside the processing sector. They also said that when the price was set at two twenty, market price was five seventy five US, so about $7.80 Canadian. Since the price has been set, the market has fallen to four eighty US, or about six fifty Canadian. And so you add that up against the three thirty eight, and that's where you'll find them staunchly digging in their heels. Uh, no flexibility here. And they say they will not be uh, uh, buying crab in the fall. A variety of issues regarding the grading system and the quality of the crab at that time of the year. So my question was, what do people think the government could be doing here or should be doing? The immediate reaction was, well, allow for outside buyers to come in. And I mean, I've made mention of that, I don't know, dozens, maybe hundreds of times over the course of the years on the show. So, yes, that would be one thing. And then the potential to ship crab out to other provinces, where they're still only getting around 225 in Quebec, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI. And then, you know, the whole concept of outside buyers and what have you, I get it. I mean, maximum value for raw material is pretty much standard business case across the board for most industries. But... If you have such a uh, groundswell of change, 
what do we do about the possibility that we could actually crush or crumble the processing sector that is here? The processing sector employs about 5,000 people in the province, so I'm glad it's not my job to uh, walk the tightrope. You know, it's a razor's edge. You can make some very poor decisions that might satisfy one entity and really punish another because we have to have a viable uh, sector on both fronts, harvesting and processing. And I get it. If I'm a harvester, I want top dollar. Well, why wouldn't you? That's what everyone's in business for, top dollar, right? Same with the processors. They want to make money. So where the solution is here, but I do know that even all of the annual rackets that we've heard in different species and their fishery, this one has a huge impact. Probably the biggest issue and standoff that we've seen that I can recall, you know, and I'm not going back to cod moratorium and what have you, but in price setting and willingness to go, I also would like to know, has anybody actually gone? out for the crab you know and then there's reference to what's happening on the uh, Facebook forum about threats and what have you you know these types of things inevitably get to this stage when we're talking about people's livelihoods and their investment in their enterprises and some of the fairly controversial comments made by some whether it constitutes threats or otherwise the screen grabs that i've seen have been pretty over the top not so sure that's helping anyone or anything at this moment of time and i just saw once again corner my eye reference to what they were getting so far as uh market price last year the fisherman got 48 percent of the market price and the same for years beyond that so you can see that those ripoff artists are doing to the fishermen so what does this year's price represent percentage-wise if it was 48 last year and this particular email if you can do that uh, very that math for me that would be great uh, da, da, da. okay so I, I don't know if this is directed at me he says so here's a post that someone had uh, uh, I think it looks like it came from the Facebook page. For those people not involved in the fishery who just think harvesters are being greedy, you obviously don't understand the dynamic between harvesters and the processors. When the initial price was sought, the 220 only represented or presented harvesters with 28% of the market versus 72 for the processors. That's what started all of this. The lack of respect and fairness. Harvesters don't expect to get prices like last year if the market doesn't support it, but 40% of the market shouldn't be too much to ask for. So says this one harvester. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. One of the stories I read this morning, I, uh, I think I read it yesterday. You know, we've talked about some of the concerns inside of long-term care, whether it be the safety of the residents, when some of those stories have been absolutely heartbreaking. And then, you know, understanding during this review, if they're looking at things like the percentage of residents living in restraints and taking antipsychotic drugs, the number numbers here versus the rest of the country. But then this story, I think, gets down to some more of the stories regarding just care because we're not just housing we're not just institutionalizing people there's got to be a level of care so this is coming from personal stories from folks who've been in the business for a long time one lady that's, that's uh, mentioned here is a uh, nurse nancy so nancy healy dove she's been a registered nurse for almost 31 years a nurse practitioner of 11. Talking about the fact that they are so pressed for time, they're so overwhelmed and overworked that they don't have time for the extras. Now, when some people might hear that or read that, they think, well, all we need to do is to offer the fundamentals. Extras are a bonus. 
but we're also talking about the care and compassion for the province of seniors. So whether it be looking at picture books or having a conversation, she even says things like taking time to hold their hand and see how they're doing, as opposed to simply going in and rotating them or giving them their meds or checking their vitals or whatever the case may be. So she's not wrong. And here's one quote that really drives home the position she's taking. She says, our residents don't live in our workplace. We work in their home. That really is a great way to summarize how the relationship once was, apparently, between the personal care attendants and the nurses or nurse practitioners in the long-term care setting, because that you can't say it any better than that. You're working in their home. And for it to be feel like home would be better for obviously every resident because at some moment of time it might be me. It might be someone belong to me, someone that I love and care about. So that really is a great way to put it. So I think Nancy's, uh, Nancy's on the right, uh, is making the point there. Then, you know, there's the thoughts about how we get it right regarding staffing shortages and the ripple effect it would have throughout the healthcare delivery system. And I really do think a lot of that happens right there in long-term care. If there are hundreds of beds that aren't occupied because they don't have the staff for them, then, of course, that has implications not only in people's home necessarily, but also inside the hospitals. How many people are in a hospital bed that have been approved for and belong in a long-term care bed, but they don't have one because of the staffing shortage? And then, consequently, that would lead to emergency room congestion, possibly. It certainly has led to surgical backlogs being uh, created simply because of that. So if there's one area that got a little bit more attention, or I, I suppose they're trying to do that, there's been a variety of incentives and what have you put forward for staffing at long-term care facilities, but that has a wide-reaching impact. Obviously, you know, there's been a lady calling about the fact that her, someone belonged to her, I guess her friend, hasn't been able to get her needed back surgery and has been told repeatedly that we don't have a bed for you in the hospital. That bed is either occupied by someone who belongs to long-term care or we simply don't even have the staff in the hospital on the surgical ward for the surgery to take place and the recovery to then follow. So getting it ready to long-term care, I think, is going to go an awful long way. There is another story that I'm surprised people didn't call on today was what they've done in Portugal Cove St. Phillips through permission from the provincial government to allow their municipal bylaw officers to enforce components of the Highway Traffic Act, notably with speeding, distracted drivers, and cars that continue to just pass school buses, which is such a mindless act to entertain. So this makes a lot of sense to me because in their community, I have a soft spot for Portugal Cove. My mother's family is from that part of the world. And if you're in that community, there is a bit of a racetrack feel to some of those roads. And remember, there's an awful lot of the, uh, the roadways in Portugal Cove and St. Phillips where there's not even such a thing as a sidewalk. You know, you're, what, you're basically walking on the shoulder of the road and the shoulder very quickly slopes in to the drainage ditches along the road. So it's a pretty confined space on some of those main roads. So to do more to slow people down makes all the sense in the world to me. The concern that has been voiced repeatedly is that a few things. You know, Big Brother, what about my privacy? What about my safety? It would be my pushback on that front. And this fact that you would need front license plates. Well, it's not like there's not front license plates on cars in other parts of the country. And then the third one, which I think is just making an excuse, is what about if it's not me driving the car? Well, if it's not you and you knew someone close enough to you that you trusted to give them your car, well, if they broke the law and got you a ticket, maybe, just maybe, you can work it out between you and whoever was driving your car. 
right? I mean, that sounds pretty fundamental to me because if I think that I know and trust you enough to give you the car, then I got to believe that I know you and trust you enough to pay the fine if you got caught speeding or passing a school bus or whatever else other, whatever other potential infraction that you've uh, conducted behind the wheel of my car. So I think they're on the right track in Portugal Coast, St. Phillips, and maybe other uh, municipalities might mimic it. It does come with a certain level of risk. We're not really sure what additional training is being given to municipal bylaw officers to enforce traffic stops, but I think it makes sense, and I'm sure others do as well. Last check-in on the Twitter for the day. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Pardon me. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.